This was your idea. This was your idea, Washington. Bones is a thing out there. Why is any object we don't understand always called a thing? Headed this way. I need you. Damn it, Bones. I need you. Badly. Permission to come aboard? Permission granted, sir. Welcome to episode 28 of the Film 89 podcast. As usual, I'm Sky and I'm the editor of Film89.co.uk. And joining me for tonight's episode is someone who made his Film 89 debut back on one of our most popular episodes, and certainly one which we really enjoyed recording. It was our V and V the Final Battle episode. That was episode 18. He is, much as he was before, a bon vivant and all-round debonair man about town. He's a filmmaker and he's a host of the ever-brilliant and culturally invaluable I Don't Get It podcast, along with his co-host Noah Tarnow. It is Mr. Bill Scurry. Bill, welcome back. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here i feel like my entire life is has pointed at this one conversation i'm not even joking oh bill i really hope it goes up from you <laughs> <laughs> and also joining us again from across the pond in the good old us of a and making the quickest successive film 89 guest host reappearance <laughs> after only yes. uh, appearing recently um on episode 26 you all loved him in that episode which is all about apocalypse now and he's here to talk about another film from 1979 it is mr john armenio john welcome back Oh, it's a joy to be back. I, too, I can see my lifeline stretching backwards to my birth from this very moment. <laughs> well, John, were you, were you even alive in 1979? Uh, no, I, I was <laughs> not. I think I was, I was a screw-well. I, I think I would have been... I would have turned three in November of 79. Obviously, Bill, you were probably a teenager by then. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. No, I was four in 79. I did, you know, I, I, I think I saw definitely Rathacon first. I didn't see this probably mm-hmm. until about 1982 or 1983, I would say. Yeah, so obviously uh, you know, tonight's episode, well, we're going to boldly go where we haven't gone before previously on the podcast. We're going to be talking about Star Trek. And in particular, we're going to be celebrating the 40th anniversary of Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, so, gents, just going on your own sort of individual experience with Star Trek, uh, John, I'll start with you. Is this something you've been into at a young age? Yeah, definitely. I can't really remember a time that I wasn't a fan of Star Trek. I think my parents sort of indoctrinated me at a very young age. 
I remember watching the original series and Next Generation uh, growing up. It, it boggles my mind now, but I, I was born in 1984, but I remember being shocked at Tasha Yar dying. And that happened in 1987. So yeah. it has to be one of my <laughs> earliest memories is because of Star Trek. So, yeah, this stuff goes uh, all the way back to when I could barely walk. Bill, what about you? Uh, I got into Star Stars, Trek, and Wars around the same time. And the funny thing is, is that, you know, obviously Star Wars had the component of the Kenner action figures to sell us on. Uh, but Star Trek did it simply with gravitas, where it seemed like they were two different. I mean, I was a freak, a freak and a half for Star Wars, I think, like the rest of us. But I also recognized what Star Trek did differently, and it did better than Star Wars, which it had. There was almost like the sense of uh, maybe it's that Roddenberryan thing. The fact that it was like the grownups were talking. And it um, handled its subject matter a lot differently than George Lucas did. And so, again, starting with Wrath of Khan and then getting into Search for Spock and the motion picture after that, um, it got its hooks in early. And there was just something about, in particular, the charisma of Shatner, uh, DeForest Kelly and, and, and Nimoy that really stood out as being the anchor for a different type of – I mean, they had all that dad energy and they always had it. And I, it's something that just – I was attracted to in the very beginning. And that's what's you know distinguished Star Trek from all the other things in, in my pop culture life as a kid. Yeah, and I, I definitely remember you know be, because I was born in the '80s, so uh, the early movies and the TV show was kind of coming at me all at once. And so I remember being so enthralled by the heroism of Kirk in the films. And then sort of being disappointed by his arrogance in the TV show. As much as I love that character, he's a much different captain and a much different man. And so I was able to kind of recognize the arc of his character over those decades, even as a, a young boy, you know, going going from, you know, where no man has gone before on the series to where he ended up in the undiscovered country. Yeah, earlier on when I think it was you, Bill, you mentioned that you actually saw Wrath of Khan first. I'm pretty sure that my earliest Star Trek memory is one of two things. It's either watching Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan in school. We actually watched it in in science class. Just I think it was just one of those end-of-term days where instead of books and games, it was a case of, oh, look, let's just you know roll out the trolley with the VCR and the TV on, and let's just see what the teacher's got in his box of films that he puts on for just an end-of-term day. And one of the films was Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, which, which I, I remember being you know quite not so much disturbed because I was so shocked by how gritty and you know the, the thing with the with the setty eels and how disturbing that was. And if, it's not, if that's not my earliest memory, then probably is watching the original series with my maternal grandparents my grandmother was a huge William Shatner fan she loved TJ Hooker uh, but then my grandfather was a big Star Trek fan and like on a on a, on a Saturday morning we'd sit down and, and watch it and and that was that was sort of my gateway drug into Trek sort of tapered off then as I got a bit older and it wasn't then until I was a teenager and the BBC started playing the whole of the next generation I think we were probably about six months maybe behind you guys at the time or thereabouts but as soon as the next generation hit it was a bit of a shaky start but then certainly from the the, the tail end of season two onwards I, I was just completely hooked yeah I think the thing for me being you know as you say Bill you know we're all part of the Star Wars generation and and Star Wars you know, for the longest time, was like in my DNA. But I think the difference between Trek and and Star Wars is, as much as they both sort of put under that umbrella of sci-fi, I don't think I don't think Star Wars is science fiction per se. It's more like 
sort of space fantasy. Star Trek is, is, is it's to do with the human race uh, and and us going forward centuries into the future. It's about evolving technology. It's about social comedy that relates to us on this planet, not some galaxy far, far away. And I think that is the main thing that differentiates Star Trek from Star Wars. I would almost say that since there is quantitatively more Star Trek in the world than Star Wars, I mean, and this this, this is all we really need to say about Star Wars and get on to the Star Trek uh, uh, discussion in earnest. I say quantitatively there's more Trek, and I think that, you know, you could say that that means Star Wars has had more concentrated, pungent delivery of Star Wars storytelling between the, uh, whatever, the eight, eight movies and the ninth one coming with the other two uh, sort of spinoff sequels. Star Trek maybe has had more chances to screw it up, but I think that they've done Star Trek right more often than Star Wars has as a proportion. So to me, I think Star Trek stands stands out as like the preeminent sci-fi space, you know, future spacefaring type franchise ahead of Star Wars. And it's like, I don't take anything away from Star Wars, but I know that I think... Star Trek has done its job, I think, more successfully than and, than wars have. But, hey, man, don't set me on fire for that opinion. I definitely agree, because I think Star Trek, it, it started with a thesis statement from Gene Roddenberry. He wanted to, you know, he famously he wanted to do wagon train in space, but he also had a very coherent and conscious social message. And that's he's carried that through, um, or at least... You know, other creators in spirit since its inception and for something that you know risky um, then and now to survive 50 years later i think is remarkable and as controversial as discovery has been i think the majority of star trek fans don't harbor ill will towards it even if they choose not to watch it and that's something that star wars has not been able to achieve true yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I think something I forgot to say at the beginning of the episode, uh, just for our listeners. Um, although I'm sure you you know this, this now if you've read the um, description of the episode. But we're going to be talking about the first big screen you know theatrical outing for Star Trek, 1979 Star Trek motion picture. But then also we're going to be talking about our five favorite Star Trek episodes, which is a feat in itself to choose five episodes from the hundreds of episodes that have been released over the decades and, and, and that section we're not going to be talking about the films we're just going to keep the films in sort of a separate pocket for now Star Trek the motion picture it's its origins guys is it right actually came from uh, an attempt to sort of reboot or rejuvenate the 60s Star Trek television series in in the mid to late 70s the road to this movie is about <laughs> as jumbled a clusterfuck as you can have even in Hollywood, because even before Star Trek Phase 2 in the mid-70s, there were two proposed scripts, one called The God Thing, one called Planet of the Titans, mm-hmm. uh, that were bandied about by dozens of screenwriters, including Harlan Ellison, Ray, Bad- Ray Bradbury, and Theodore Sturgeon, that took the Enterprise either back in time or, you know, with other godlike beings. And that material, some of it survived into Phase 2 and some of that stuff survived into, into the motion picture. But those films were then scrapped as a lead-in to Phase 2, which was then obviously scrapped after um, Star Wars and Close Encounters convinced Paramount they needed a motion picture. And even um, Ralph McQuarrie, conceptual artist of Star Wars fame, and Ken Adam, production designer of James Bond, had production design and concept are done for those two pre-phase two movies and so when we look at the budget for the motion picture it can be misleading because there was you know this half a decade of pre-production work that went nowhere <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's one of those strange things where you know if you look into the history of certain films and how early before the actual film even started shooting before a roll of film was put into a camera 
Some films have obviously been in, in, in production for years. Some of them, you know, approaching a decade. You know, certain troubled productions. And, and yeah, you know, this film, it, it could have gone so many different ways. And as much as obviously, Bill, you say, you know, let's get away from Star Wars and let's get back to Trek. I think it goes without saying that the actual success of George Lucas's Star Wars in 77, it, it must have surely had an impact in Paramount's decision to put this Phase 2 TV series on the shelf and put Star Trek up on the big screen, something which, you know, I'm sure in a lot of people's minds was something that had never been entertained, was never going to work. You know, Star Trek was always on TV. It was always weekly, episodic, sort of, you know, little isolated pocket episodes. There was no sort of, you know, narrative through line. For a lot of people, before sci-fi became big again with, you know, the likes of Star Wars and then Close Encounters... It probably must have seemed like a bit of a gamble. Obviously, you had the big boom in the 50s of, of, of sci-fi, but that was always seen as a sort of B-movie territory. And it was only then in, in 68 with Kubrick's 2001 that Star Trek was... It, it was shown that it could be something other than schlocky B-movie or, you know, the TV fair. Yeah, um, and not only that, but, you, you, like, you know, talking about Close Encounters and Star, uh, Star Wars being the impetus for... You know, millionaire Paramount Studios madman Barry Diller jumping the track from a TV show that looked like it might have been misbegotten to a giant unwieldy feature film that nobody was really sure if anyone was going to sign up for. Uh, but even, you know, think about this, right? I, I mean, this is obvious now because we've had Star Trek in our lives in one way or another annually or or monthly since since 1979. But there hasn't been any other franchise that main that went away for a decade and then came back with the same constituent cast in the you know pot-bellied receding hairline form that they were in and they just more or less tried to pick up where they left off like there was we've had certainly of course you know Battlestar Galactica was fantastic but there was almost nothing that resembled the original and I mean to its to its strength they they put together a tremendous reboot but Star Trek coming back with all of its uh, principles in you know whatever shape whatever middle-aged shape they're in is completely unprecedented it hadn't happened before that and as far as I know it still hasn't happened after that and with any other franchise and in that is a remarkable um, you know stretch mark from the birth process of this thing that's actually one of the things that I find beautiful about the film is that especially Kirk and Spock are trying to rediscover something that they've lost. Like they're really kind of, you know, swimming out there in, in the dark, looking for meaning in their lives again. And so for the franchise to bring these characters back into the fold in the same way the fans are back brought back into the fold, we're, you know, we're all looking for something to grab onto for meaning again. And I think that this film is largely about that theme and so to for the movie to go directly at that, to acknowledge its midlife crisis, I think is really interesting and beautiful. That's actually a perfect point. And, and to, to think that, like, first of all, when you, you know, I watched this in two forms uh, for, the, for the occasion. I watched the theatrical cut, um, which has an HD blow up in 720. So I got a pretty good version of that. But the director's cut that came out in 2001 is a crappy uh, DVD rip I have from, from, from back in the day. So the thing is, looking at the HD uh, picture, I actually see there's a, there's a shit ton of makeup spackled on everyone's face, especially Nimoy looked like they troweled that pancake on thick. It's like there is, they're hedging their bets a little bit between the story, which is about midlife crisis, but then at the same time, they were trying to treat the actors with smoke and mirrors and girdles to make them look like they weren't the age they were at. Now it's fun 
a couple of movies later, they just relinquish that and they say, this whole series is more or less about men aging and talking about it. It's about getting a hold of, you know, mortality and, and becoming irrelevant or whatever all those different things mean. And it starts with this movie. But this movie's towing the line between this. These people have to look like they haven't aged a day since the TV show. But all they're doing is talking about essentially aging and moving on and, you know, grappling with uh, generational growth. I mean, those two things are fascinating. And yeah, you know this theme of of growing old, of looking back at your life, looking back at your career. This is something that is started in this film in 1979. It's carried through then again into Wrath of Khan with obviously Kirk needing you know the spectacles which he gets off Bones. It then goes through to you know Kirk and his his familial developments with the fact that he finds out that he's you know he's he's, he's got this son which he then later loses and then it you know it carries on again you you, you get a bit sidetracked then with a you know a quest for some whales and a quest to find god and then it gets very political in Star Trek 6 but then in Kirk's final swan song it then goes back to him looking back at life looking back at his his time in the captain's chair looking at his career where he always put his duty and loyalty to the federation before himself and before having a family and it's just like a lovely through line that like starts there in this film and then actually you know the finishes in 1994 in generations but yeah it's it's very much about the, the, these guys and it, and it is you know this the, the sort of age sort of stigma is is sort of imposed on the male characters and, and kirk especially but yeah you know that's that is a lovely little through line that kind of like follows through with us but you know, looking at when Paramount eventually decided to settle on, you know, a big screen theatrical outing, are you aware of any other directors they had in mind before they settled on the one that they eventually did? Um, I, I knew the couple of the. I looked at the names on Wikipedia, but none of them really. I think they were TV guys. I think they were John. Unless I'm unless I'm mistaken about this, it looked like they were undistinguished, at least compared to 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 Wise. Yeah, the the only um, other director that was really attached was um, Philip Kaufman. Okay, yeah. Oh, no, that would have been something, because obviously, you know, Kaufman, I think, you know, the year before, he'd, he'd, he'd done um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, yeah. And I think Kaufman was also on the short list to do some Star Wars, too, I thought. I thought uh, Lucas might have been sniffing around him as well. So he was kind of a, a director in demand around that time. Yeah, one of those guys that was always on the short list, but only a few times actually called to the plate. Yeah, there you go. So then eventually um, Paramount settled on Robert Wise, who by then he was, he was something of a Hollywood darling. He directed... You know, some beloved classics like The the Day the Earth Stood Still, uh, The Haunting, West Side Story, Sound of Music, uh, the, the McQueen war film, uh, The Sand Pebbles. And uh, didn't he do the, the Andromeda Strain in, I think, was it yeah. 71 yeah. or thereabouts? That was Sam. Yeah, so, and, and you went before that, before he became a director, he was an editor, editing none other than Citizen Kane for Awesome Wells. Right. He then also went on to edit the magnificent, mag, sorry, the magnificent Ambersons, which um, it was only today by chance I actually came across um, when I was going through his uh, filmography on IMDb that he was actually uncredited as a co-director on Magnificent Ambersons. I think I heard about that. Yeah, I think it came up on Wrong Reel or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I forget where I've had that. Where that one spilled. Oh, yeah, another interesting fact since you mentioned uh, Orson Welles. Um, Orson Welles was asked. By um, Bob Wise as a personal favor to do the voiceover narration for the first uh, trailer to, uh, for this movie. If you look on YouTube, there's a couple different versions of the theatrical trailer, and the best one, as far as I'm concerned, has an uncredited, uh, well, unmistakable uh, Orson Welles voiceover, which is a thing of beauty. Yeah, and I think it was 
I think that was possibly because Robert Wise obviously was the editor on um, yeah. on Citizen Kane, and this was maybe you know Wells's way of returning the favour. Sure. Yep. Uh, sorry, I'm just flicking through my notes. Uh, yeah. Right. So, so but from a budgetary point of view, the eventual final budget of the motion picture was thirty-five million dollars, which, you know, for nineteen seventy-nine, that is, you know, that that, that that's a decent-sized budget. You know, in fact, if you look at a lot of science fiction films made in the eighties, were made for a fraction of that cost. So, you know, they were really throwing the money at the screen. But I think yeah. initially. Mm. The, the budget, if I'm right, was a, you know that was a lot lower than $35 million. And it was a case of, as the production ran on, and you had the likes of John Dykstra and Douglas Trumbull, you know, having issues with the effects and wanting to basically put, you know, Robert Wise's epic, you know, sort of vision up on screen that the budget did kind of skyrocket. Yeah, they had, um, apparently they had eaten up so much of the Paramount backlot. This is the first time... I mean, they were almost like attempting Cleopatra-type uh, sets uh, to some degree. Uh, there was very, very few location shoot shots, I, I guess, except for they went to um, Yellowstone's dubbed in for Vulcan in this one. But uh, for the most part, everything else was indoors, especially for that recreation area. They said, this is what's weird, watching that scene where the entire crew gets a muster about what, you know, when, when the, what is it, the Epsilon station gets yeah. eaten up by V'ger. There's an assembly of all these people. Of course, the, the funny thing is most of them were uh, fans and part of the fan community who had been given uh, costumes and prosthetics to to kit out a, a hypothetical starship crew. But uh, a room that looks with that 70s aesthetic, it, I think they kept saying it looked like a Holiday Inn somewhere in, in, in Denver <laughs> or something did. like that. Yeah. But it was this enormous you know, two-story two set to make it look like this is the first time that anything had ever you know, been portrayed to give the Enterprise some scale. That you would have a, a sense that something that large could be inside of it. Because you know, up until that point, you had TV show sets which were made out of plywood. And so they really wanted to make sure that everything was given the uh, you know, physical sense that this was larger this was not an episode of the tv show that this is a feature film and it had a feature film look with a feature film scale and so what did they do with it uh orange footstools and tan carpets <laughs> i don't think you'll ever find a film with as much beige tan <laughs> just 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 colors i'd have to google what those colors are they're probably colors my grandmother would be familiar with there's a lot of i don't want to use the term dull but it's certainly is definitely a step away from the almost sort of psychedelic colors of, of 60s Star Trek. It's like they tailored the sets to match Shatner's wig. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but to, to go back from that, you, you have these wonderful blue and yellow and red uh, tunics that they wore in the original Star Trek, and they were color-coded and great, and, and you know, they popped on TV. To kind of abandon that for that sense of uh, the late 70s space shuttle NASA era aesthetic of all that gunmetal gray and, and taupe and, and eggshell and cream and beige seems like that's the only flaw that I would say. The biggest, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty un, uncritical about this movie, but that's the only thing that looks like a missed opportunity. One of the things that I philosophically love about Star Trek is that it is so 60s. Uh, the original TV show, obviously, and it could not have been made in any point in history except 66, 67, 68. And so for a, I, I kind of want that spirit to be maintained into the late 70s. So I want a movie 
of a Star Trek movie to be indicative of the time it was made in. So I think even though it's not aesthetically pleasing, like the way the later movies are or the way the TV show was, I can understand the decision making process, even if it's not as gorgeous or as bright and shiny as the original series was. Well, the first thing I heard when Nick Meyer came on to do Wrath of Khan, the first, he pointed at the he goes, get those fucking things out of here. He says, they, <laughs> they dyed the jackets red almost like on the day he got there. And so like those things were constantly shedding red dye because they had done such a cheap job of trying to make something with a little color. They got those sort of those burgundy coats were more or less repurposed costumes they already had for motion picture they were just trying to fix something right away i know meyer said he had that in mind instantly those are my favorite star trek uniforms honestly the the wrath and con burgundy tunics yeah. those are gorgeous they're great yeah and they, they look great then when i think is it, is it kirk's lapel is open and his blood on it and it, it yeah. just you know this yeah. so just so we don't miss anything out let's just go through the film chronologically on a kind of sort of scene by scene thing see what you can pick out the film opens with John Dykstra's special effects. John Dykstra, obviously, you who worked on Star Wars. Again, sorry to bring Star Wars back up, but a lot of the people who worked on this actually did cut their teeth special effects-wise on George Lucas's film. So we've got an opening shot of three Klingon cruisers approaching this you know, giant blue cloud that we later find out is this big spaceborne entity called Vija. This is this incredible shot of the camera sort of moves over the head of this big Klingon cruiser. That, that that motion control camera move, that little 180 spin, yeah. was great. I mean, that is real filmmaking. That's cinematic. Talk about making this thing look like not the '60s show. This is a feature film, yeah. so we're going to give you we're going to give you the Stanley Kubrick type full deal. Of mm. uh, this is going to make space travel look like it's uh, the real the real situation. And I I know it's a cliche to complain about CGI being you know taking over models and practical effects, but that's a kind of shot that you do because you are limited by the three dimensional realness of a, a model prop that you have to shoot around, and that kind of cinematic kind of wonder at the glories of space I think has you know gone from science fiction films because it's kind of so easy to to make it in. In CGI, and not to say that special effects artists have an easy job, but I, I just think it's it's so kind of breathtaking to see this sort of shot so soon in a movie like this. But you're you're also steering into the skid a little bit too. If you have limitations with practical and optical um, special effects, the beauty of it those is those those three Klingon birds of prey have this amazing level of detail. First of all, yeah. they're a shape they're a shape we haven't seen before. It's a play on the ones from the TV show, but they're given a lot more. You know, there's almost like filigree all over the damn place, which is insane. So the thing is, if you have the ability to drive a camera over them to pick up you get a sense of scale because they were big models anyway but it's like show the thing you paid for it show the damn thing and it's like drink it in and you get every single dollar you spent in those birds of prey on the screen they, they set up this stall early on in the film when you're watching a tv show you're used to much quicker editing because quick cuts on a big theatrical cinema screen are always going to come across in a different way to how they will on a small tv screen so you're going to have you're going to take more time with these shots you're going to you're going to linger on things more and if they linger too long on a lot of those effects and models from the original tv series you would have seen the scenes but when they're going to go to all the trouble like john dykstra did of creating this one big klingon ship because it was just the one model and it was actually just photographed three times and that sort of over the the head of the klingon cruiser sort of rotating motion control shot actually took him three weeks to create 
Yeah. And then you go inside the ship and, and the production designer, Harold Michelson, he and Wise wanted the interior of that ship to look like a you know World War II German submarine. The, the inside of that ship now, if you look then throughout the later films and certainly in Star Trek Three with Christopher Lloyd, his character ship, and then obviously, you know, we we see the interior of a, of a Klingon bird of prey again then in Star Trek Four. It, it's a level of detail that, that we'd never seen before and it, it's actually giving the alien ships, the, the Klingon ships, a character that's separate from, you know, the clean, sterile sort of Federation ships that we've been used to throughout the TV series. I just think it's interesting that this is the first time we're, we're giving that personality of the inside of a Klingon ship, and it's Mark Leonard in the captain's chair, yeah. <laughs> the man who played the first Romulan on screen in Star Trek. So, uh, and then yeah, he went so, on to yeah. play. Um, he went on to play Sarek, didn't he? Um, Spock's yeah, father. exactly. So yeah, think about what you had. Like, it's a really good point. I know that you know, maybe we're spending a little too much time in this opening scene, but I do think it's worth discussing because exactly the point we're trying to make here is that it cements this as being a feature film and a larger version of what was on the show, that you're not wasting your time with something that was this campy NBC show. NBC? CBS? CBS, right? I forget. Anyway, it doesn't matter what the show is. But the thing is, is that you get the motion control camera, you get these incredibly detailed models, you get the inside where you're seeing a new version of the Klingon that you'd never seen before. If you're looking at John Colicos, for instance, in the, uh, the original series, he just essentially had a Fu Manchu mustache. And these are grotesques. These are real ornery aliens who look like they will bite your uh, bite your arm off. Um, and on top of all that, you have that incredible goldsmith Klingon theme, mm. which, you know, he invented it for this. And it's and it syndicated across so much of, of Star Trek. And so this this one little bit you're talking about three minutes of film is anchoring so much of what's to come. It, it's you know it's a it's a beauty to rewatch it again. And then it carries on, and you've got the Epsilon Nine, the Federation space station, and again it's the scale of the model. But it, it's just the film, as we'll see later on with the the famous flying around the Enterprise scene. It takes it its time to sort of signpost these detailed, intricate models, the things that you know most of the budget is gone on apart from Shatner's paycheck and just and just tell you look this is bigger you know this 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 is bold this is again Douglas Trumbull who did you know incredible effects work on 2001 this is a showcase of special effects there's so much technology porn in this film there's so, sort of you know salivating over spaceships and and over things which you know like the magnificent the you know the the, the epic and, and it's very much a sort of celebration of, of the fact that we're going to give you that big screen track adventure, but we're going to give it on a huge scale and we're going to show you things that we just would never have been able to show you know, with an entire season's budget. I was going to say, you switch the scene over after that, it goes to San Francisco. And, you know, I don't think that's ever something we've seen before. Star, Starfleet, you know, Starfleet headquarters. And you get the, you know, here's Earth in a different time. Here's the Golden Gate Bridge, which has turned into some sort of causeway. And here's all these shuttles flying around the Bay Area. You know, it's, you're instantly jacking the stakes up. Yeah, and even for the director's edition, the 2001 version, that San Francisco introduction scene is padded out a hell of a lot more with, uh, I think in the original you had uh, Matt Paintings done by Matthew Urisic and his team. Some of those are retained, certainly for the um, shuttle dock, but then you've got this lovely new recreated shot of the Golden Gate Bridge mm. and something which I'd never noticed before, which is actually in the original shot in the 1979 version as well, but it's not as easy to make out. The entire bridge is lined with solar panels. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much like we've seen in track before with the you know walking around with data pads. What are we doing now? We're all carrying around big phones and iPads, and then you've got you know this thing of solar energy being you know something that we need to harness. So 
Star Trek, just like it was in the 60s, with its you know forward-thinking political commentary, it's all, it also does it in relation to technological achievements and advancements as well. Yeah, they they went from uh, tricorders to uh, little uh, Apple Apple watches on their wrists. You know, they weren't speaking into these large uh, uh, you know walkie-talkies. They were essentially just talking into their um, their Rolexes. Well, you know, the original Star Trek communicator. It was the invention of the flip phone. <laughs> You know, it, right. it had a little gold metal piece that would flip up and then fast forward a couple of decades later, people are walking around with flip up cell phones. Yeah. Uh, is it before the San Francisco scene we actually see Spock um, on Vulcan trying to uh, achieve Kolinar, which is a, you know, a Vulcan ritual where like any sort of extraneous emotion is expelled in order to you know, achieve this, this sort of um, state of pure logic? I think that is, does that come before San Francisco? Yes. I think this is one area where the 79 version does sort of look a little bit shaky with the effects. Because when you look at Vulcan in the 79 version, you can actually just see into space. It's like as if there's no atmosphere. You see, you know, other surrounding planets, planets which, which look far too close for comfort. But then if, <laughs> that, that's one thing where I think the director's edition stands out because you see this beautiful, lush, red planet with like golden orange skies. You know, you see these giant 50-foot-tall statues. You know, the whole scene has expanded a great deal in, in, the, in the director's edition. Yeah, the only thing that still uh, looks like garbage is uh, Nimoy's wig. Everything else was really, <laughs> yeah. everything else was punched up really respectively. And I, I think this scene is just another example of why the Vulcan race is so fascinating. Um, and you get this kind of taste of it in just this like, little bit. It's, it's a planet of hyper-advanced technology, more advanced than the Federation because they achieved warp speed you know, decades or centuries before Earth did. Um, they're you know, obsessed with logic and science and discovery, but they're also so preoccupied with ancient ritual and their own history that goes back millennia upon millennia, and you see that in the statuary in, in the scene and the, the ritual that Spock is trying to, to perform. And so it's such a dichotomy that I think is, is fascinating and then to see Spock, who is, you know, half human, half Vulcan himself, kind of come to the brunt of that and be rejected, I think is so, mm. so poignant and, you know, in just this one scene with no English dialogue. Did you did you happen to see that there was something interesting about that scene, which I didn't realize until I read about it on IMDb, was that they were actually speaking in English when they were on set. But then Jimmy Doohan went in later and, and they kind of invented, they matched the lip flap with this sort of like gibberish language they came up because no one really had Vulcan as a language mm. before that. So they invented this lip flap to when they when they did ADR to match essentially what their English was, except they made it Vulcan. So the subtitles you're seeing on the screen more or less relate to what their lips are doing, but that's not what you're hearing because they invented a, a fake language for that. Yeah. Just sort of summarizing basically what the plot of this film is. Obviously, we see the, the Klingon ships get destroyed by this big energy cloud. That is witnessed by the, the nearby Epsilon 9 space station, which transmits then a distress code to Earth, obviously telling them that this big giant space behemoth is, is coming their way. It, it's around then the 15-minute mark that we first meet Kirk. He meets the new science officer for the Enterprise, Sonak. Sonak, I think. Sonak, yeah. yeah. So he meets him in San Francisco. They're talking about getting you know, the Enterprise up to speed. And then we've got one of the most famous scenes in the film is the, the, the tour that Scotty gives Kirk of the newly refurbished Enterprise in space dock orbiting the Earth. Now, guys, have you, have you either of you bothered to time this scene? <laughs> I have not. No, uh, I, don't, I don't need to time the scene because it's not too long. Everyone who whines about it can shut up. Okay. I'm exaggerating. But yeah, I, I know it's a long scene. Just as a little gauge of, of your perception of time, I, I'm going to give you 
three options. I, I want you to tell me which is actually closest to. Is it closest to five, 10, or 15 minutes in length? My, my guess is five. Yeah, five. Yeah, it is actually, um, it's around about five minutes and 40 seconds. Yeah. But when, when you were 12 year old, watching it for the first time like I was, having already seen The Wrath of Khan, The Search for Spark, The Voyage Home, this scene went on for about, it seemed to go on for 45 minutes. I think it's Robert Wise. I mean, you know, Robert Wise is is you know no amateur when it comes to the visual art of of you know cinema. He he, you, you referenced the uh, the haunting before. The haunting is one of my favorite films because there's essentially no special effects in it whatsoever. It's all suggestion. It's all just the camera deep, you know, gazing at doorknobs and you hear sound effects and things like that and people's faces. So the, the man knows how to uh, you know lay a story in. And I think that, um, you know, I know this is a vilified scene, but again, it's part of this thing that says, this is not a TV show. This is something different. This was was something like a 15 foot long model that they built. Mm. And they were just, again, drinking it in, put the camera around it, follow this thing. It took them weeks and weeks and weeks to do this motion tracking shot around it. But you looked at every single square inch of this thing. Like it's just talk about enterprise porn. You know, it's like you want to know that this is the thing that you, you've been waiting for this. All these fans that had been writing in trying to make this thing work. That like this is this is what you paid money for. This is what you got. Here's the money shot of the enterprise and all of its grandeur. For for me, the scene is also about a conversation between Kirk and the Enterprise. Because it's this middle-aged man who is seeing the object of his longing. It's a conversation between, you know, human and technology and with a character that 95% of the viewers have come in already being in love with. And so as you know, pure cinema as 2001 is in its kind of obsession with, you know, space tracking shots, I get more out of this one scene than honestly anything in in 2001 because I'm in love with this character who is having the simultaneous experience of loneliness and joy at seeing the object of the one thing in the universe that he actually loves. Yeah, this is as happy as Kirk is in the entire movie, honestly. I don't think you get a single bit of joy that would uh, exceed this for, for his character. And it, there's a lovely little deleted scene that doesn't actually exist where you actually see a scene from the day previously where McCoy gets the same little tour from Scotty. He actually gets on the little shuttle, he's clean-shaven, and then by the time he gets off, he's got that beard that we like to see him with. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's one of those things, where when I first saw it, and, and, and growing up and being a Trek fan, and then you know when you talk to about your friends, they were like, have you seen the motion picture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's more like the slow motion picture. But <laughs> as, I, as I get older, my, my appreciation for that scene grows. It's aided in you know no small part by Jerry Goldsmith's amazing score, which we'll come to later. In fact, let, let's get that out of the way now. Jerry Goldsmith's score for this film. The, the, the first time I, I'd ever seen this film, I, I probably, it must have been about 87, 88 or thereabouts. So yeah, I would have been maybe 11 or 12 then. The first time I saw this film, I was like, well, hang on, this is the original crew and it's got the next generation theme music. <laughs> it, it, it totally threw me. I, I I I had to look at the back of the VHS cassette. I was like, yeah, nineteen seventy nine, uh, and yeah, Star Trek's on TV now. Just couldn't get my head around the fact that I'd never heard this music before. The Next Generation. I go back and watch this old Star Trek film, and and this music, which has never been in the TV series before, is you know front and center throughout this film. What what, what do you think of Goldsmith's uh, contribution to this film? 
You take it. Uh, he's a goddamn superhero. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If you listen to the commentary on the director's edition, uh, Jerry Goldsmith has several like great insights into his thinking. But you know, he he his CV is bona fide. But you know, he he did the score for Alien, for Planet of the Apes, for Total Recall. So he has a lot of experience in science fiction, and he he loved doing that because it got him able to use his imagination to the fullest because the filmmaker's imagination making science fiction were going full bore. But this coming after Star Wars also let him be very romantic in his and very emotional in his uh, scoring. So I think there's this great combination of really strange out there ideas, like the power beam sound that V'ger has yeah. that is more effective than any Bwomp Hans Zimmer has ever used to the romance of the main title theme, which will be in my heart forever. Oh yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's iconic music. And like you say, the, the best way to describe it, it is romantic. I, I think a, a lot of the reason people think this scene goes on forever is because there's just an inherent lack of dialogue. You've got Scotty and Kirk on this little shuttle. You know, we haven't seen these characters for 10 years. You know, we want to catch up. We want to know a little bit about them. We want to know what Scotty's been up to. But all we've got is, is a dialogue-free scene. Goldsmith's music does so much to sort of elevate it. And then coupled with Douglas Trumbull's phenomenal model work on that Enterprise. The older I get, the more I watch that scene. And I think, you know, in, in prepping for this episode, I've probably watched it three times. I think halfway through the second view and I had to stop and have a shave myself and have a sleep. But <laughs> it is just, uh, it, it's one of those scenes that I used to laugh at and I used to mock. But now I, I watch and I sort of, it, it just puts a big broad smile on my face. It's slow cinema. I mean, there's just something to it. I mean, yeah, Jerry Goldsmith's theme, he slows down the main title theme to something more elegiac and something legendary. Like, you could picture a camera soaring over Mount Rushmore or the Taj Mahal with the same spirit. You know, it's actually worth mentioning Jerry Goldsmith did the music for a ride at Disney World called Soarin', which is exactly that. It, it is the camera soaring over world art uh, uh, landscapes with this with this reverent music. And there's any, if there's any man who is designed to do that kind of uh, uh, reverence, it's Jerry Goldsmith. And I mean, this to me is my favorite score uh, of his. And you're talking about a career where I, I'm, I'm not going to slur John Williams by saying that everything John Williams made sounds the same. But I think you do understand there's a kinship between John Williams' scores. I think Jerry Goldsmith nearly reinvented his technique every time he sat down to do the movie. So if you put Alien next to this, next to uh, Planet of the Apes, next to – I mean he did Basic Instinct on top of everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, those They sound very dissimilar to one another. And yet there's a sense – and he did Chinatown too. I'm forgetting Chinatown on top of that. That's an insanely good score. Yeah, the guy the guy was a legend just for the fact that he was so chameleonic without losing any yeah. intensity. Yeah, I don't want to take anything away from John Williams. John Williams is, you know, one of the all-time greats and he has created music which is just going to be synonymous with film scores for Jaws, Superman, Star Wars, Indiana Jones. But there's always that little thing that if you you ask people who are not I suppose hardcore cinephiles to sort of to hum or whistle in succession the theme tunes from Star Wars, <laughs> Superman, and Indiana Jones. You can guarantee that there's a high chance that they're going to mess it up because there is that sort of familiarity, that similarity between his scores. One thing you can never say about Goldsmith is none of his scores are samey. Look at the scores we've mentioned there and how different they are. You've got The Omen, you know, you've got Planet of the Apes. Alien, even staying within science fiction with Total Recall, they, they just sound so different from one another. He can turn his hand to something like The Burbs, you know, for Joe Dante. 
he doesn't get the kudos and the credit for being one of the all-time greats in the same way that I see Hans Zimmer getting now, which frustrates me because I, I think Hans Zimmer is equal parts genius, equal parts frustrating and, and repetition. Yeah, but mm-hmm. Goldsmith is just—he's one of the all-time greats up there with the likes of Bernard Herrmann and, and Miklos Rosa and, and John Williams. He is just phenomenal. Yeah, full and stop, I, I, absolutely. And I think it's even fascinating, like for me, because he he approached this film because he he said that Star Trek is about everybody living together, you know, with tranquility and and peace and in harmony ultimately. And so for that's how he approached the emotionality of the score. And so for him to go from Planet of the Apes and Alien and have this in between, for him to just kind of have the emotional capacity as an artist to go so far afield of you know his other output, I think is pretty remarkable. Yeah, and and think about what came, what comes after this. You know, James Horner picks up the baton uh, with at least uh, Star Trek II. I don't know if James Horner did three, but James Horner takes a lot of the motifs and invents a few of his own too. You know, the 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 work of overcoming that, not overcoming necessarily, but diverting people from the Alexander Courage theme into something else, sort of begins with Jerry Goldsmith. He does the job well that you have great music ongoing in Star Trek after this because of him. And it is nice that a few yeah, a few moments throughout the film when Kirk is doing his captain's log, and we've got you know Alexander Carriage was actually brought back on just to do these little motifs of the original you know music from the original series, which are just weaved back into these few little maybe three moments throughout the film. Yep, Chef's Kiss, beautiful, excellent. So then, obviously, when we get off the little shuttle, finally maybe hit pause, go have a piss, and you know <laughs> <laughs> rehydrate, maybe have a snack. <laughs> We're on the Enterprise. Uh, Matt Jeffries, who had designed the original Enterprise interior, this time, as you said already, I think, John, you said that the, the interior of the Enterprise has got a much sort of, especially the engineering section, has got much more of an open and vertical layout, which you know it gives a greater sense of scale of the ship and, again, adds to that whole overall sense of grandeur and the fact that we're seeing our little TV show blown up for the big screen in, in more ways than one. I think there there really is a, a palpable sense of scale inside the Enterprise because there's just a lot more people uh, running around doing things, doing tasks, prepping the ship for you know its maiden voyage after all these refits have, have been happening. So I think we're getting a much more clear sense of where this is in the Enterprise's life, whereas almost at any point in the series it could be taking place at any point in in the ship's history whereas you know this is right here right now this enterprise yeah and as we you know as we're having this sort of tour of the ship it's kirk he, he's walking on he's, he's looking for engineering and then he's looking to speak to a new character we've not seen before uh, commander decker played by stephen collins kirk then explains to him the fact that he's sort of you know he, he's had a, a very long difficult conversation with is it admiral nagura and he's yeah. secured himself captaincy of the enterprise once more so then decker gets demoted from ship's captain and then we've got um, the transporter scene with the previous character we saw commander sonak the vulcan character gets beamed aboard a uh, nice little callback there with a little cameo from janice rand uh, played by grace lee whitney and then we've got that nasty little transporter scene what do we think of that you know, John, when you're talking about the redesign of the Enterprise and, and saying how what, what it looks like in terms of refit and how it's stating it's a movie, one of the things I really liked is that the transporter seems to be separated from the deck by a screen as if they were anticipating either energy and or like splattered Vulcan mess to be thrown <laughs> on him. 
And like, there's you know, the the engineering section obviously looks bigger, but then Scotty and those guys are wearing like radiation suits, which is interesting because that's like you know he was just running around in that red shirt before. Uh, but the, tra- the transporter accident, first of all, is really well done. It it insinuates a lot without kind of tipping their hand a bit because you can't quite see what's going on, with the exception you hear that really blood curdling shriek from whatever the hell Sonak was turned into. And, you know, it's just a little blip to show you that things, have, you know, things don't always work well in space. It, it, it communicates that you're about to see the wormhole sequence come soon, too, because these things, you know, this thing's not quite up to ship shape yet, so to speak. But it's horrifying. It is, and it's the, the fact that we don't see much. We don't see them obviously rematerialize back on the transporter pad down on Earth. But a little line that comes over the, over the, over the um, communicator of what we got back didn't live that long, fortunately. And then there was a little line which was removed for the director's edition where Kirk just says, oh my God, uh, why they removed that? I don't know, because I just think it adds to the whole horror of what he's just witnessed. Yeah, it's a great because line. It's a, I, great, it's a great line reading, too. I, I was just going to say, we do get a little bit of the, like warped silhouette of the, the two crew members as they're they're beaming, and it's not a human form that they had been turned into. For people who have watched the original series judiciously, I think it calls to mind how often McCoy complained about the madness of sending your atoms all throughout space and having them reassembled at the other end, and he's looking pretty smart uh, at the moment. <laughs> hey, were there any transporter accidents? Or should, I should, how many of them were there in the original series? Because... I am, it's almost like we haven't seen this particular level of body horror before in Star Trek, but I have to imagine there were mishaps. Well, they, they, were, they were malfunctions, because I think if you look at the episode Mirror Mirror, they're transporting up from a, some sort of um, ambassadorial duties on a planet, and when they get transported up, there's a transporter malfunction. I think that is actually how they originally get transported into the Mirror Universe. Yes, yes. Uh, but we haven't seen, like, I know in Next Gen, like, a person got transported between decks. She was, like, fused into the plates. Yeah. So that, that sort of thing gets introduced with here, where you have a real the horror of what it could possibly be, rather than just like, oh, inconveniently, I went to another universe. And, you know, there's that, um, the episode of Next Generation, where Riker is transporting up. There's a sort of bit of sort of atmospheric uh, interference. His transporter beam gets split and a duplicate gets sent back down to the planet. So Riker materializes on the Enterprise, but then an exact duplicate of him materializes on the planet and gets left there for God knows how many years. And then he later turns up as Thomas Riker, um, as this sort of doppelganger of Will Riker, who's, who's carried on his life as normal aboard the Enterprise. And that's canon. He's still there. Thomas yeah. Riker is just somewhere in the universe, like yeah. uh, Seymour Skinner, the uh, what is it, Armin Temzarian. It's it's yeah. a real thing. <laughs> so then, after um, Kirk has given Decker some bad news, the crew were then assembled on the recreation deck, and and that whole scene where we see for the first time in Star Trek, as far as I can recall, we we see the whole crew of the Enterprise in one place. That was actually made up mostly of fans of the show, and one of those fans was actually B.J. Trimble the person who had started the letter-writing campaign which had secured the original series renewal for a third series after it got cancelled. That's fascinating. I think I think um, there needs to be like one of those uh, Ryan Murphy FX miniseries, like the, the, the Fosse Verdon, just about her. I want to see somebody play that woman and kind of like bring this whole little picayune story to some kind of miniseries or like an HBO original film because that's really interesting that you know these people especially her get the credit for keeping star trek alive that's wonderful yeah it's probably the the greatest example of positive fandom in like tv or movie history yeah oh yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. 
And then obviously they're watching the transmission from the Epsilon 9 station, by which point now Vija is, is, is approaching it and is about to you know just obliterate it. And one little funny difference that always makes me laugh about a difference between the theatrical and the director's edition is in the original version, uh, the guy that's speaking to them on the on the transmission says that Vija is measuring over 82 astronomical units. Now an astronomical unit, one astronomical unit, is 93 million miles. So multiply that by 82 and that's how big Vija is. And then, and then in the director's edition, that's reduced to a far more manageable two astronomical units, which is still huge. But you yeah. know, always, always this makes me laugh that you've got all of a sudden then Vija is the size of a solar system. Isn't isn't one astronomical unit the distance between the Earth it and the is, Sun? Yeah. yeah, it is. So yes. yeah, I mean that's big enough as it is. Yeah. I mean two of those is is unwieldy mm. to start with. And then we see Perseus Cambata playing Lieutenant Ilea, who is a Delton, and Deltons are a hairless and sort of highly sexualized race for whom sex is the equivalent of a human handshake, which is quite interesting. <laughs> Somebody interesting to confront Kirk with. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, Kirk, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can you imagine that last episode of Star Trek where Kirk goes to Delta? <laughs> It'd just be X-rated filth. Uh, I, I, I think we need to do another diagnostic on the Enterprise before we leave orbit, guys. Yeah, and then, then Kirk gets back on and he says, uh, McCoy, I'm sort of itching downstairs. Damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a miracle worker. I'm kind of picturing all the Deltons like spent and worn out. From, if there's any any creature in the universe who could who could expand the, the Delton libido of Jim Kirk. Yeah. They've met their match finally. And then you can imagine all the men turning on him so he then gets to have like an endless fist fight. <laughs> With his, half his shirt torn off, right. Playing the, uh, playing the, the, the Gorn theme. The, the, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, so Persis Kambata, then she she becomes sort of Decker's um, continuing love interest. And then <laughs> you've got Lester sort of like a, make a little compartmentalized segment of the episode to talk about Dr. McCoy's beard and his disco medallion. <laughs> 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 what the hell were they thinking? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. D D Forrest Kelly just sells it though, man. John, what were we, yeah. what were we gonna say? I uh, just that whatever he was doing, I predict it was lots of dancing, lots of fun, and very little clothing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and lots of medication. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I, I love, you know, he's selling it to me. I just, you know, he shows up. First of all, I wish it wasn't such an obviously crappy beard. But what they're trying to convey is that he's just, he's he's out, you know, and he, he has thoroughly given up. He was ambivalent about being on a spaceship to begin with. And then whatever, you know, separatist compound in Montana he's been living on was a far more preferable option than uh, roaming the halls of a starship. Mm -hmm. So then, um, before long, you know, Scotty's managed to sort of sort out the engines on the ship. You know, you've got to ask, what the hell have they been doing? This this Enterprise, everything's going wrong on it. But then the Enterprise eventually um, jumps to warp speed and, and enters what they describe as a wormhole. And an asteroid is dragged into, into warp speed with it. Now, what amuses me so much about a film that's often dubbed the slow motion picture, you then have a scene where things actually, <laughs> actually become slow motion. <laughs> so you're taking this already, you know, in the in the theatrical cut, sort of treacle-ish slow film, and, and just slow it down even more. But you know, from a technical point of view, it took three weeks to shoot that scene with forty to fifty camera setups for just three minutes of a scene wow. in in the final film, which is just an incredible amount of work. And then you go back to like the previous shot with the, the, the sort of motion control shot over the Klingon ship and how long you know that took John Dykstra three weeks to do that alone. You know, it's no wonder that coming up to the eventual release of the film, they were just literally running out of money and time and so 
so many effect shots had to be either sort of corners had to be cut or had to be dumped altogether. And this scene doesn't do anything. I mean, other than the narrative, you already had the sense that the ship is unsteady and maybe a threat to its own occupants after the transporter accident. This doesn't. You could you could have easily edited this out, and it doesn't change the narrative at all. I think the main point of the scene is that it shows that Decker is far more capable. To, to be in charge of the Enterprise at the moment. He knows more about the ship from a tactical point of view, and it's also highlighting the fact that Kirk... You know, is it made clear the fact that Kirk is... You know, was he an admiral, or, or was he just a captain, but had been sort he's of... He's an admiral. Right, yeah. So he's actually taken a step down. You've got, to, you've got to ask, and obviously they've eliminated money in the 23rd century, but, you know, is he happy to take a pay cut to, you know, just to go back on the Enterprise? Yeah, if if uh, if, if, if when you listen to, uh, you know, Bones tell him it's an obsession, you know, he doesn't have a choice because yeah. he's essentially just driven to it by compulsion. I believe that. And then um, I think after that, when obviously, you know, Kirk confronts Decker and we have a little bit of a power struggle thing. Again, you know, that, that, that's a scene that Shatner always gets short shrift when people talk about him from an acting point of view. I don't think there's anything wrong with his performance in this film at all. It is a little bit more restrained and less sort of over the top, and he just he doesn't go full Shatner. You know, I think his performance in a way is all the better for it. Yeah, and I he really has a difficult job in this film, especially because he's like wrong to do what he does because he comes in to take Decker's job and mm. Decker's the last person to the, to know. Uhura has to tell Kirk Decker doesn't know yet. Yeah. So he's getting the shaft by Starfleet and by Kirk and Kirk has to both come onto the Enterprise brimming with confidence but then also fail with the operation of the phasers and the wormhole scene. He gets lost at one point. So he still has to come at this with enough confidence that he knows what he's doing, but also show vulnerability in being in this new environment, but also have enough innate goodness that the audience is behind them. It's a really delicate balancing act that Shatner pulls off. Oh, definitely, John. And you, you say earlier that when you went from watching the films to watching the TV series, you were sort of struck by how arrogant Kirk is. And as much as I think there's an arrogance to Kirk in this film, I think it's more driven by a sense of duty, the fact that he knows that he's the one that has to get out there and tackle mm. this you know, threat. Is this going to come and destroy potentially the entire Federation? And I think there's a, there's a nice sort of humility to him when he's being confronted by Decker and instead of being the bullheaded captain and standing up to him and smacking him down, he actually does sort of say, yeah, you know, you're right. I tell you what, you, you keep me on yeah, my toes. Yeah, he admits he's wrong. Yeah, yeah. he does. And he does. I, I, I love that side of Kirk in this film. And it's only recently, having rewatched it, I've actually realized this is probably one of my favorite Kirk performances in all of Star Trek. And, and it's something I'd never even considered before because, got to be honest with you, decades past, I had been a little bit dismissive of this film. But, you know, I'm so glad we chose to do it as a rewatch and... and and go back to the film because I've seen so much about this film, which probably because I'm older and wiser now, maybe that I've <laughs> you know I, I've realised that yeah you know there's, there's a lot more to this film than younger me you know more sort of you know attention deficit me was sort of willing to turn a blind eye to which I'm now looking at and thinking yeah you know there's there's, there's a good layer of depth to this film certainly from an acting point of view from Shatner. Yeah, this is the. I think it's the Ur Cork uh, performance by Shatner. He does a lot of nice work. He, depending on what the scene is, believe it or not, he he dials things down. He was bigger on a TV show, and he's actually smaller in the theater, which is almost you, you'd think you'd go the other way around. You keep it smaller on a TV show, but you'd, you'd amplify it for the for a, a movie screen. And yet, he had enough uh, practice between the the decade in, in which the, the show was off the air and this came back, and he really did things differently. And there's a lot of nice line readings. I kind of watched back a few times 
when Decker says um, something about taking unwarranted risks, uh, Shatner gives this really soft, almost thrown away line reading. He says, how do you define unwarranted? And I just love the way he says it. There's just small line readings like that. I mean, when he, uh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but my, my favorite scene in the entire movie, maybe in all these movies, is Bones, uh, Kirk, and Spock. As soon as Spock comes back to the ship and he says, would you please sit down? <laughs> yes. And it's yes. just, it's like that, those, that feels like three dads in a room. There's just, the grownups are talking and I love that. And it's like he, you know, meters out the energy and the tempo of that scene. And you're just watching these three guys who know each other very well. And, the, and, and, and it's like, he understands I could play off of DeForest. I can play off of Leonard. We already know how to do this. And he just kind of, the intensity is up, but the volume is down and it's softer and it's quieter. And it's generally more successful. And I think it's that three pronged relationship is one of the things that the best Star Trek films and even some of the worst Star Trek films, when it gets right, it's that chemistry between the three leads that carries it through because as much as Star Trek V is always you know, seen as a sort of runt, certainly of that six-film, you know, original series run. I think the the interplay between Kirk, Bones, and Spock in Star Trek V just does elevate it a little bit and makes it far more palatable, certainly for me, anyway. At when Bones comes on the Enterprise for the first time, Kirk yes. says, Bones, I need you. I need yeah. you. Like, And so for him to admit that is both a sign of growth for the character and a sign for what the franchise needs as well. It needs those three characters. But Bones immediately demonstrates his necessity because he's when they're talking about V'ger, he says, why is any object we can't understand always a thing? <laughs> yeah. So we need that perspective of Bones to be like, maybe this isn't some malevolent evil creature bent on our destruction. We mm. need to approach this like another sentient being. And I, I, I'm so grateful that we have Bones there to give that perspective. Well, watch that scene. If you watch that scene, I mean, watch DeForest Kelly thinking. He's listening to Shatner. He hears what he says and he changes his mind. That's the thing. It's like, sure, you can, you know, rather than just everybody's waiting to say their lines, which, you know, some movies would get enough get away with perfectly there's the thing he starts off by saying bones there's a thing out there and he says yeah why you know how why everything just is it's called a thing and he he says damn it bones i need you he puts his arm out and the funny thing is the camera stays on deforest kelly and it's, it's it stays behind shatner and he does this little this this twitch it's like he extends his hand and then he puts it out further he juts it out a little more saying i really need you and you watch the interplay between these two guys and you're seeing an acting exercise where he's convincing them and it's it's beautiful you're just watching the gears turn and isn't that the scene where when bones realizes yeah you know i am gonna stay and he, he sort of warms to the idea and as he's walking off he goes through the door and as the doors close and he's still talking to himself as he walks <laughs> off and it's just a lovely little touch it's, it's just like the film is full of these and, and it does take you back to the fact that yes some of the characters are a little bit different certainly spock when he comes on board he's gone for the colonar ritual you know the, the sort of human side of him has been suppressed he is different but then eventually, we see later on when he mind melds with Vija later on in the film, you know, that more of the, the side of that old Spock comes back. And eventually then, by the end of the film, we're brought back to where we were, or certainly more comfortable in the original series with the characters that we know and love. Yeah, but it doesn't feel unusual no. that, for instance, if you're going to, if, if Spock's turning into a little bit of an ice monster, uh, it's a little bit of a, a pepper in the punch bowl. I don't even know if that's an expression. Forget I said that. But my point, <laughs> my point is, is that he is is, pre is preventing uh, this real harmony, or at least he's withholding this thing from the audience that you want to see these guys get together. You know, like the job that Leonard Nimoy has and the job that the cast has around him is they have to bridge the gap between them. So they have to build the chemistry all over again using these same characters. And again, yes, 
it 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 takes until the end. You watch this arc, and it makes sense when it happens. But Nimoy does a fantastic job, and the rest of the guys sell it. And so when it happens, it's this um, you know the delivery of this thing you've been hankering for since he gets on the ship from the shuttle. It's the it's the it's the you know the delivery. And there's you know talking about you know the characters giving you little glimpses of. It, there's one little moment in the film which I don't even think is Kirk. It's just pure Shatner. And it's when after the little wormhole thing, and then. Scotty's able to sort of sort the engines out and they eventually go to warp and they get up to warp seven. It's that little wink that Kirk gives Chekhov. <laughs> that, that, that's just golden, that, that pure William Shatner there. Lovely little moment in the film. It was written into his contract, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So then I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, and I don't mean this as a negative, but my notes read as follows. Pretty much the next 20 plus minutes involves the Enterprise traveling into and then through the vast interior of Vija until Ilya gets zapped by one of Vija's probes. So this is the part of the film where I think, you know, a lot of the actors in, in subsequent interviews have said that, yeah, you know, for the majority of this film, we were stood there on that Enterprise bridge set, just looking into nothing really, and being told, this is what you're going to see, you're going to see these magnificent, and I don't even think they knew at the time what eventually Douglas Trumbull and John Dykstra and the rest of the huge effects team were actually going to put there up on screen. So you know, it's a lot of acting into nothing really. That kind of acting, I don't want to say it was invented around this time period, but it was perfected. I think I, I feel like I tell this story all over the place, but a couple of months ago, I saw Close Encounters. I saw the, well, I think it was the director's cut of Close Encounters being shown here in New York. And Bob Balaban was in attendance, which is great because, you know, Bob Balaban lives in town. So he's not the kind of guy, you know, you, you get to see him, you know, often enough. But he was there specifically to talk about what it was like to shoot with Francois Truffaut. When they go to the question and answer portion, I asked Balaban, I said, how did Steven Spielberg get, because the whole last, you know, for, uh, reel of Close Encounters is everybody just looking in awe at the camera to effects that were not made yet. Mm. And only later on did they add in all the optical work, all the, all the, you know, the, the visual effects, the practical effects, and then the puppets, the Carlo Rambaldi aliens come much later on. And yet when you're watching it, it's, it's seamless. You know, somehow they managed to convey the actors to get them to have this, this awe at looking at nothing, looking at sight lines. And I mean, there's a real skill in that. And I feel like, yeah, for what you said, it, it, it is in effect, you know, that is what happens in the next 20 or 25 minutes of the movie. But I buy it. I buy everyone's face. And they, they're, they're, I can see that they're thinking about what they're seeing in their own heads. And they do a great job of responding to this thing that we can only imagine what it must look like. And, and it all comes together in the edit when they meld together the effect shots and the onset shots. And then obviously Jerry Goldsmith's score, which sort of fills in, you know, for a, yeah. a lack of dialogue. Yeah, and yeah. Robert Wise actually um, talked about that in his commentary about how be because the last thing done on any movie is the sound effects because everything has to be done before the sound effects go over the film, uh, is that Jerry Goldsmith's score really had to fill in the gaps for the incomplete sound effects because of the rush production schedule. Yeah. So that's another example of Jerry Goldsmith being kind of the superhero of this movie. But because so much of this stuff was 80-yard um, because there's so much noise on the bridge and so much unrecorded dialogue when they're out uh, walking on the kind of hexagon platforms of, of V'ger, Robert Wise was actually talking to them directly as a, almost like a silent movie director, um, <laughs> saying, oh, you're seeing the most beautiful thing you've ever seen before. You're in awe. Oh, my God. And so I... <laughs> I think that sort of conversation on set was probably a pretty unique experience, and so that might have helped them communicate that awe. 
And then you've got you know Vija sends this, this probe in to the you know the Enterprise bridge. It's attacking the computers. It, you know it, it's it's pulling up information about the Federation's defensive capabilities and the size of the fleet and things like that. And then Ilya just basically gets vaporized. You know much as we saw happen to the three Klingon ships and then the Epsilon Nine station. But then very shortly afterwards, there's a replacement officer sent on board who is actually um, I think in the film her name is Defalco. And she's yeah. played by Marcy Lafferty, who was William Shatner's wife from 1973 to 1996. So, if, yeah. you know, for that period of what are we talking, 23 years, she was the luckiest woman on earth. <laughs> yeah, that's, then, that's the title she gets. And then, and then we've got the shower scene where this, this sort of me- mechanical facsimile of Ilea appears in. And I think, is that the first time we've actually seen a sonic shower? We, we've heard them spoken about in, in track, but is that the first time we've actually seen one? Yeah, I think so. I believe so, yes. She is sent back by Vija as some sort of probe or, or, or an envoy of sorts to communicate you know, with the biological organisms which have infested the Enterprise. And you know, we haven't really discussed the whole plot thing about Vija yet. What do you think of that as a plot device, as a sort of, the sort of central tenet of this film and eventually what we find out about it? Well, she's the uh, she's the Silver Surfer, if you want to think about it. She's yeah, the Herald she is, of, yeah. The Herald the of, Herald of Vija. Galactus, yeah. The Herald of Vija, yeah. I mean, I think it works. It works great. I mean, it it, it kind of makes you question why was uh, the character inserted into this movie if she was just going to be turned into a plot device? I love Ilea, and and I think it's, you know this is a perfect time to sort of discuss Persis Combata because for the most part. This is the show uh, cast writ large, with only two new actors added into the mix for the most part. Um, you got Stephen Collins and Persis Kambata. And Persis Kambata was one of the most beautiful women in the world. You know, she was like a Miss India, 1968. Uh, this woman, you know, moved into to acting and, and, and she died far too early. She never got a chance to have that sort of third act in her career where you assume she would have done really um, interesting international work. But this was her high watermark. This yeah. was her introduction to American filmmaking. And I mean, what a... What a you know, what a real introduction it was, too. I mean, in this, this franchise, this character, she does a lot of interesting things. She's, she was a great actor. I mean, and she was beautiful. And the other thing, too, is that, you know, she volunteered to shave her head. Her hair was her moneymaker. I mean, especially for, I, I, I don't think this is incorrect to say, but especially for a South Asian woman, the idea of removing your hair is a big co- sort of cultural proscription. And yeah. she decided, hell, I'm getting, I'm, I'm committed to the bit. I'm going to do this. And so she shaved her hair. There's a great piece of film online uh, about her um, uh, shaving. They, they actually had a camera running when they were buzzing over, and she's sitting there weeping in the chair, watching her locks hit the ground. And it's just like, that's commitment to the role. I thought she did a fantastic job. And it's just so sad that she, you know, I think she was 49 when she died. Yeah. I think it, it's such a testament to her sort of iconographic face that we're told that Vijay's attracted to her and sort of utilizes her persona as its avatar because of her innate compassion and we see her be almost vulcan-like in her emotions before that happens but i think it's a testament to the subtlety of her performance and just how kind of hypnotizingly beautiful she is that we're able to kind of buy that even after seeing her you know compared to the tv cast for so little that okay this is the most compassionate person on the ship that's why vijay came to her I, I just think yeah. it's a tragedy that we didn't get more of that actress, you know, in, in other films. Yeah, and then obviously when you know the earlier probe is is describing her role there and, and 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 giving Spock that sort of curiosity that he wants to sort of explore this thing more himself, and then he realizes that it's some sort of living entity at the center of this big huge machine cloud. We've then got that jetpack scene. 
this scene for me from from purely from a visual point of view is probably probably the most jaw-dropping effect scene in the whole film we've got that almost like a sort of flower iris thing the sort of folding and, and pulsating and breathing and, and you know it's actually a working model that's being moved and you know in this fog-filled beautifully blue lit chamber the sense of scale that the thing gives is just absolutely jaw-dropping I didn't know that. I, 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 yeah, I just, I guess it makes sense. It had to be practical. It was probably a guy, you know, using his hands. Yeah, because you know, it the way it's moving. If it was done with any sort of stop motion animation or, or any sort of keyframe animation, it just wouldn't have that natural look to it. But the whole thing is, it's lit internally. God knows how many like sort of little LED lights it had in it. But you know the sense of scale of this model. I, I don't know how big it actually was in in real life. So much of the model work in this film just gives a, a massive sense of scale. It's just absolutely superb. Well, it was. Um, I think they threw out the original conception because they just thought it wasn't weird enough, and they brought in Sid Mead, you know, who's the legend. And Sid Mead came in and, and originally managed to nail this. I guess what does it look like? A huge submarine? If, I think at first it was described. Uh, the it looked like the Nautilus, or it looked too much like the Nautilus, which is why they they farmed it out. They said, hey, "Get rid of that. That's too conventional. We know what that looks like." So he did come back with something that is an enormous cylinder, but it's just completely alien. It's mm. like there's no purchase for a life form on board, which is really what cements it. It's like what the hell lives inside that thing? There's no way to tell from looking at the outside. Yeah, and I certainly think up until this point, and in, in, certainly in the track show, we'd never seen anything this sort of abstract. Because certainly when Spock flies into this sort of chamber where it's sort of like, I think he describes it as like a holographic representation of, of the travels of Vija and all the spaces it's explored. But there, there is a lot of abstract stuff in this film. Even before this scene where they're flying into the heart of Vija, there's a lot of stuff that, I don't use the word strange and, and sort of put any negative connotation on it, but certainly it's, it's all very abstract and unusual is the best way I can describe it, I think. Yeah, and I think that's one of the strengths of of Star Trek as a franchise is that it, from the very beginning, it went full bore on forms of life that we've never seen before that we can't comprehend. So whether you have like the Organians or the the, the Squire of Gorthos or the the Doomsday Machine, uh, there there is this precedent for large, unimaginable, uncomprehendable living things in space, and this is just kind of the pinnacle of that, at least so far. So I think it, it's a testament to the strength of the franchise that we're able to make this the front and center of the first motion picture. Yeah, absolutely. And then obviously, you know, as we come towards the end, and we finally realize that that Vija is the old, is this the Voyager six probe. Or yeah, Voy- Voyager six. Voyager six. Yeah, which was you know sent out into space. I think three hundred years earlier. Um, it's, it's done quite well for itself in three hundred years. That's that's. that's <laughs> it's, it's it's bulked up quite a bit. Yeah. And I, th- I think I think that might be why the wormhole scene is necessary in this movie because it introduces okay. the idea of of time as sort of wonky and non-linear in this in this journey because the t- the development that Voyager has made requires a billion years maybe uh, it, it's it's that is not. The the, tra- the tra- even the distance it must have traveled is not a hundreds of years God, sort of no. course. Uh, so and and all that the development and evolution and technology it must have passed through something to get that sort of advancement and then make it back to Earth. Yeah. Again, no one ever describes what the hell this thing is. We don't know the energy source it runs on. We don't know what its engines are built on. We don't even know it might it might it might not even use warp technology. It might literally have um, some sort of teleportation or may actually use black holes to travel from end to end. So 
I mean, that's the beauty of it is that nothing is ever described. We never get any, we, we don't know anything about anything about V'ger. They don't ever try to tell you a goddamn thing about it other than what you can lay your eyes on. Yeah, and, and, and these the, the, little yeah. sort of abstract terms which wouldn't make any sense, like when they say it's generating a power field of, of 12 power in magnitude, which, again, you know, doesn't mean anything to us. It's, it, yeah, but you watch uh, George Takei, 12 power. Mm, that, yeah. tells you all you, that tells you all you need to know. Yeah. And that's also what I love about the the probe in Star Trek Four is that it's this weird, you know, tube that communicates with whales, and we're never getting, we're never given any explanation for that at all. And and that's another thing that I love about these Star Trek films is that the explanation isn't necessary to be enraptured by the narrative. Whereas if they were being made now, we'd need an origin story for. Mm everything although i do yeah. i do a lot easier buy the actual uh, whale probe from star trek 4 just because it is you know the scale of things and whatever is a lot more easier to get your head around and again mm-hmm. that, that seems like you know it's almost like the monolith in 2001 watching it, i think you know the the third time i actually watched it recently in prep for this episode i was pulling out more little sort of tonal similarities with 2001 because you know the whole concept and execution of this film is is more akin to kubrick's film than it is the star trek that we know and love from the original series it is a much more ambitious story you know it's a study of artificial life with leanings towards like an, an eventual higher stage of human evolution much like we see towards the end of 2001 things with the altering of the color palette on the interiors on the on the uniforms and giving it a sort of more sterile setting which does lean more towards Kubrick's film than Roddenberry sort of bright and and I don't want to use the term camp but you know certainly vibrant more more vibrant show well think about this I um and I think I came up with this one of the two times I watched this recently is that in terms of its inspiration the, the kind of tone that it's aiming for if the TV show was populated by a lot of writers who came out of a sort of pulp background, they were like magazine hacks and short story writers and guys who were influenced by dime store novels, this seems to be more in the line of Arthur C. Clarke. I mean, I, and in fact, I think that the idea of, you know, I, I've always thought there's a beautiful singularity between uh, uh, with the concept of the first thing America or first thing Earth threw into space that went the furthest is eventually returned back. There's a great unity. It's a very simple plot. To me, that's almost like the perfect Star Trek plot you can possibly imagine. However, it's it's theoretical and it's filled with awe and it uses, you know, the, the size of the galaxy and the sense of uh, what's out there and also the human spirit. It really does look more like an Arthur C. Clarke plot. And the fact that this movie defaults back to that um, rather than other sci-fi, rather than like Robert Heinlein or something else with the TV shows, it that's part of what sells the transfer, transformed tone to a feature film as opposed to an hour-long TV show, you know, on a network in the 60s. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So then eventually we find out the origins of Vija. It's, you know, it wants to be sent this sort of NASA identification code in order to sort of merge back with a creator. But then obviously Vija itself, as it learns more about its origins, has started to evolve. And then now, certainly through the experiences of the Ilea probe, it wants to know what it is to become human. So like you say, Bill, you know, it looks like Ilea and Decker have been put in purely to, you know, to, as plot devices because they're not going to be kept for any further films. Uh, they merge and we see what I call, you know, the Starman effect with, you know, <laughs> Stephen Collins, you know, with it, with all the static and, and the wind, like, but blowing his hair up. And then, well, the, the, like V just sort of, does it evaporate? I, I don't really know. And then, we, but then we've got a beautiful shot with loads of lens flare. J.J. Abrams must love it, of just 
the the Enterprise is flying into camera. Beautiful. Yeah, it is. It, you know, it's, it's a it's a gorgeous looking film. See see what you want about you know potentially that you know certainly in the seventy nine cut the pedestrian plot and 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 the editing. It's, it's a gorgeous looking film. It's it's about merging your consciousness with the being of the universe. It's about becoming something more than you are, like what they say at the end, through the frailty of human emotions and your striving and willingness to overcome those yeah. weaknesses to become something more. And I think that's you know inherent to Star Trek. That's what Star Trek is all about. And so I think it's kind of a, a beautiful way to depict that on screen. Guys, wait, wait, I want to know, what are your theories for actually what happens to V'ger? What do you think uh, becomes of, of it? Well, you know, going back to its origins, um, you know, eventually when the, the Borg were created, Gene Roddenberry himself sort of retconned V'ger's origins and suggested that the machine planet that we actually see when Spock is traveling through this sort of holographic thing, he said that, you know, potentially that could be the Borg planet and V'ger landed there, it got modified and it just got sent back through space as some sort of knowledge-gaining probe. Personally, I don't buy that because that goes against the very nature of the Borg. They're not as sort of exploratory. They're more like a you know a force that wants to go through the universe and, and just dominate it. I don't know you know the eventual what what happened to it. Maybe it it evolved much like we see you know the final evolution in in two thousand and one. It, it's something that's sort of beyond our our capacity to understand. And maybe that's the whole point of it. I think it became just part of the universe. And, yeah, and you yeah. know it's to do something. Yeah, like you said, that we can't comprehend. Yeah. So you know, the, the the film it, it was certainly a modest hit. I think it made worldwide. I think it made one hundred and thirty nine million dollars um, based on its thirty five million dollar budget. Where do you think this film stands, guys, in the whole you know canon of? Because obviously we're going to be going on later to talk about our favorite Star Trek episodes. But amongst just the theatrical Star Trek outings, where do where does this film rank for you? I love two, four, and six, um, but I like this one more than three and five. As a Star Trek fan, I don't know what 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 that says about the film individually, but I really do love this movie. Like we we've been covering how how great uh, the music is. There's some great character moments in here, but but also one of the things that I relate to in this movie is like sometimes you know to be honest, I can be like. Spock. I can be putting artificial walls around myself to deny the emotionality of what's going on around me, but then I see something like interaction with a friend and realize that what I'm doing is total bullshit and that this right here, you know, that moment when Spock grabs Kirk's hand and and has that, you know, heartbreaking moment with him or heartwarming moment with him, like that's a real kind of, that's something that gets me, like gets me to my core. Uh, and so whether I rank this movie higher or lower than other ones, that's kind of irrelevant at that point. In that moment, in that scene, I am with this movie. Boy, Wednesday must be really tough at your comic book shop there, John, if that's yeah. <laughs> uh, that's where they got you in life. Uh, I, I, For me, this is my favorite, full stop. And it has wow. been for years. Yeah, and I have no qualification. I, I am absolutely, uh, um, you know, I don't hedge my bets at all. I mean, it is really a, a close hair's breadth battle between this and two, but I love the fact that this one leads into uh, Rathacon, and they don't have to compete with each other, but for sure, I just think that this, I don't think I will ever see, for, for my taste, a better pure Star Trek plot than the one they created for this. And I know that it was it was born of many false attempts and weird half-assed ideas, and to be honest, the stuff that came out of it you know, like Star Trek V, I think, was was shaved off of some of the original concept of this, where they were going to find God. And so you remove the God quotient, but you put the spaceship into it. And, uh, you know, what they settled on 
pared down to me is perfect. And I think it's just simple enough and just huge enough that it almost can't be topped. Not that like, you know, Space Seed becoming Wrath of Khan is great, but that almost winds up being, it's you know, it's a, it's a submarine thriller. It's great. It's not as enormous and, and star-spanning and questioning existence the way the first one does. But it is a tremendous, you, know, you know, Wrath of Khan is a tremendous movie. But I think this one just wins on grandeur alone in a scale that no other Star Trek movie has kind of ever tried to attempt and might not, you know, it's probably unwise to try to do something as big as this because it might not hit with the same level of success. Yeah, there's something that I can't help but admire and love this movie more than any, any others over a sheer science fiction ambition. Yeah, yeah. I, de- I definitely think that there's, a, there's an argument for this being certainly a more Star Trek film than Wrath of Khan. This is more pure, that sort of sense of wonderment, the exploration of the universe literally as the line goes, going where no one has gone before. Whereas Star Trek Two is it's a, it's a revenge film. It's Don't get me wrong. I think Star Trek Two is, is is the best of all the Star Trek films from from an entertainment point of view, from a performance point of view. I, I just it's it's one of my favorite films, full stop. Whereas the the motion picture, I've, I've had a bit of a strange relationship with it. I did used to sort of see it with this sort of faux, sort of mocking thing of it just being it's just very pedestrian. But as I've got older, certainly as I've revisited it, and certainly in the in the in the the form of the two thousand and one director's edition, it is as good as that film is ever going to be. And apparently Robert Wise was so pleased with how the you know the director's edition eventually turned out because it was now a film that he was finally proud of, a film he was able to finally finish. And as much as the differences are not massive, the differences between the 79 and the 2001 version are are numerous. There's so many little adjustments, there's so many scene trims, little scene additions, uh, tweaking of the special effects, and then full-on, completely redone special effect shots. And it is just so satisfying that we were given that version, but it's also equally frustrating the fact that Paramount have not bothered spending the money required to fully update that version yeah. to HD standard. You know, for me, if you, if you were to ask me which films I would like released on Blu-ray, it's going to be at the drop of a hat. I'd say James Cameron's The Abyss, which hopefully we're going to be getting soon. Ken Russell's The Devils. And then third on the list would definitely be the motion picture director's edition. Yeah, I mean, the, the question they had with it was when they doped in the effects in 2001, they were not obviously thinking ahead to 4K. So they were kind of curious about whether the computer renderings were going to actually survive the up-res. You know, the film, obviously, you can scan the film, but if you're going to republish all the uh, computer files that they created and whatever software they were using in 2001, you might have been stuck with an SD image. But I think they said that the is that they they actually do have the original uh, projects, um, and you could essentially publish them up up-res. Mm. So it is, it's rather than just, you know, doing a, a scan of the negative at 4K, apparently they have to republish a lot of the reconceived effects. So it's not just your standard conversion. Um, it is a, but, but it's definitely doable, but I mean, I can understand Paramount just doesn't think it's got enough money to put out just to put another, you know, a Blu-ray DVD out for the, for the benefit of me and John and you. Yeah. Well, if you yeah. consider, you know, I think Paramount have decided that they're not going to do the same level of restoration with Deep Space Nine and Voyager as they did with, the original series of Next Generation, which I think is a crying shame. Yeah, but, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to see new effects put in Deep Space Nine, but I do want to see it, you know, just remastered and brought up to a, you know, a higher definition standard, much like they did with the previous two series. 
Yeah, I guess they must have just lost a lot of money on the Trek up-res. I mean, the the original series, you know, they did a really nice job. The versions of that that you can get on Hulu, and the, and the, those look really nice. And I will say that, you know, maybe it's sacrilege to, to have changed out all those planet interstitials and the phaser beams and all that stuff. But it really looks dynamite. I mean, they didn't lose yeah, any... They do. Yeah, they didn't lose any of the effect of the original TV show. You know, and I haven't actually watched any of the uh, Next Generations that, uh, that have been up too. So I'm sure they look great, but I haven't really been swept back by, oh, you know, what does this actually look like in, in today's, um, you know, in today's uh, pro- programming environment? Well, it was shot, it, they, it, it they was shot on native video, yeah. wasn't it? First season, I think, was 35 millimeter, but then I think native video went yeah. later on for, as a cost-saving uh, measure. Yeah, from what I've seen of, the, you know, the few episodes I've seen in the new remaster, it, it just looks just completely revitalized i just wish they do the same for deep space nine yeah yeah so gents is there anything else you want to say about the motion picture before we move on to our favorite uh track episodes well i i I will say that like i said there is a um a real relish i have to watch in this movie i watched it two days back to back you know just because i wanted to compare each version to the to the one before it but i could watch it every single night of the week i feel like there's no fatigue whatsoever i really enjoy how decompressed which is you know the thing that this movie takes a lot of shit for from everybody is probably the reason why i love i love it so much there's an ecstasy to it is you know the decompression the size of it the fact that a guy like Robert Wise coming on board, this fusion of the old and the new, serving as a bridge between, you know, 80s type sci-fi filmmaking, using a guy from the 50s and 60s to do it, you know, who came up in the black and white era and things like that. It's unusual. Maybe it shouldn't work. And again, maybe it doesn't for a lot of people, but it just scratches some itch. And again, seeing the three guys, Bones, Kirk and uh, Spock in one place is um, just like a chemistry, the likes of which I don't think I've ever seen anywhere else in, in another pop culture property, maybe watching Deadwood or, or The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. There's just something about those people together, you know, that 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 cements uh, a, a legacy. And, and you know, I don't know, it's, it's a comfort. It's a comfort, the kind of which I have trouble describing. It's, it's like a warm, comforting blanket or, or slipping on a pair of comfy slippers after you've been out hiking all day. There you go. And I, I I couldn't agree more, Bill. Um, yeah, the, those three characters, I, I love seeing them together. And, and I love that the ability of a character like Spock to start at a place so self-imposing a coldness on him. And then he'll go on this sort of metaphysical and physical journey into V'ger and he'll come back. And he'll be able to shed a tear for this kind of incomprehensible being and calls it a brother and say at some point in our lives, we reach out to destiny, a father, a brother or a god. And and to have this moment of closeness with V'ger and this sort of kind of emotional epiphany, um, I think, is a beautiful testament to what this film does. And remember, the tear is only in the director's cut. It's not in the theatrical version. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Sir, we are being hailed by the Borg. On screen. I am Locutus, a Borg. Resistance is futile. Your life as it has been is over. From this time forward, you will service us.
Mr. Worf. Fire. Okay, so moving on to our favorite five section. And this week, in keeping with the main topic of the episode, we're going to be discussing our all-time favorite Star Trek episodes. We've omitted the films, but these choices are going to be from the whole gamut of the Star Trek shows, from the original series, the animated series, The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and Discovery. So I think we'll start with John. Do you want to go ahead with your number five? Okay, uh, my my number five in honor of Mark Leonard being in, in, in this series. I actually I narrowed my list down to twelve, but because that's against the rules. Um, <laughs> uh, my number five pick is Balance of Terror from the original series uh, from season one of Star Trek. That features Mark Leonard playing the first Romulan, um, and they encounter the Enterprise, and a epic battle ensues. And we're introduced this wonderful cat and mouse game between these two alien races that kind of, sort of, know each other, but not really understand each other. And just the interplay between the two captains, between the captains and the respective crews, I just think is a brilliant. Um, and it's not a cartoonish villain. We're given sympathy and pathos for the Romulans. And, and it's not a celebratory victory. Very sad uh, when the Enterprise wins. And, and I think it's, it's one of the strongest and most suspenseful episodes of the original series. Yeah, I agree. Well, well, yeah. well put, yeah. Bill, uh, what's your number five? My number five is uh, Next Gen Season 5, Episode 14, a uh, little little ditty I like to call Conundrum. I, I kind of, some of these things are not going to be that obvious, but I just read these stuck in my head. Conundrum was an episode where uh, I think before the credits, the cold open is that the, uh, the, the Enterprise is struck by a beam or a flash that causes everyone to lose consciousness for a minute. And everybody wakes up at the same time. And they're all amnesiac. None, nobody knows what the hell, who anybody is. They're sort of meeting each other for the first time, just looking at things. Where are we? They have some technical knowledge of where they are, but they don't know their own identities. And the weird thing is there's an extra bridge member named Kieran McDuff, who was not there before the flash happened. And so the whole episode is about the crew reaching around, re- they're looking at the files, reacquainting themselves with uh, who they used to be, but they certainly aren't those people anymore. And it's just really unusual how it resolves and that it turns out Kieran McDuff is this alien entity that was placed in the middle of their amnesia to drive them on. It was an alien intelligence was using the Enterprise to fight a battle for them. And so they kind of get their memory back at the right, right before they're about to actually atomize this inferior civilization. Captain Picard's like, holy shit, we're being used. Mm. And they turn, it's like, and you, McDuff, you're the, you're the, you're the, you're the fuckhead is trying, you know, like, you're not one of us. And they, they shoot him with like five phasers and you see he's like taking the damage, like the phasers eating his flesh away and it's eating his flesh away and they keep shooting him and shooting him and shooting him until finally they kill him. But it was just the balls of a tv show to make everyone unconscious and they wake up and there's an extra crew member that it almost like am i losing my mind was he there beforehand i've never met this guy before but they don't explain it it was just a really great storytelling convention yeah it it, until you mentioned it 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 wasn't one of the episodes that stuck out but as soon as you did i I do remember this episode yeah it it, before i go on to my first pick i just got my list i i've obviously done several of these lists now for the numerous favorite threes and favorite five segments we've done throughout film 89 this has been without doubt the one i've labored over the most there isn't anything definitive about my list and i could easily swap out 
at least three of the five and replace them with other picks which unfortunately you know had to get pushed to the wayside and again the order of the list could change quite easily as well my first one at number five is the next generation's final episode it's all good things oh good choice yeah Ending a TV series isn't an easy thing to do, especially one that's ran on for seven seasons like The Next Generation did. But the fact that this episode just wraps up so much stuff, it gives us an older version of Picard living 25 years in the future where he's retired, he's living on his family's vineyard, which we've seen in that amazing season four episode, Family, which came straight after The Best of Both Worlds Part Two. You know, it, it's a whole exercise staged by the coup, which of course ties back to, you know, the very first episode of The Next Generation, Encounter at Farpoint. And it's just such a, a beautiful way to wrap things up. And then to finish the episode, when you know this sort of time conundrum thing which you know coup was created gets resolved and everything goes back as it as it should be for the first time captain picard goes and joins the the poker game the rest of his crew have been playing without him oh, yeah. for the last yeah. seven years and it's just an incredibly moving episode people say that i know there's a lot a lot of people that don't like generations a lot of people say that this film and the plot of this film should have become you know the first the next generation film but yeah it's just a beautiful episode it's one of my might be my favorite series finale of all yeah. time mm-hmm. yeah and john delancey's a rock star man that guy oh, can yeah. Do yeah he it. is awesome yeah. so john what's your number four um uh, my number four god this is just it's it's like i'm killing my children <laughs> yeah. these episodes. um <laughs> Uh, season one, episode twenty-five, "Devil in the Dark." Uh, th- this is uh, for me a classic Trek episode with you know a, a moral at the center, but it, it also features a classic nineteen-sixties prop of this kind of bubbly styrofoam rock monster that we that we have to be convinced is a living thing, and the Enterprise crew has to realize that this is actually a mother who has been laying eggs, and these miners have been murdering uh, her children. And so the devil in the dark is actually us, and we have to learn to sympathize and empathize with this creature that we, you know, can barely comprehend. And it also the, features the Horta, the, the Horta, and it features the the classic scene of Spock mind melding with the Horta and screaming pain <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> At, into the sky. It's a uh, trek at its finest. Oh, this this episode had my favorite uh, my favorite Bones line of all time. As they're fixing the horde with some um, concrete, I believe it was. Yeah. Yes. Says, by golly, Jim, I'm starting to think I could cure her any day. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. Yeah. Horde Skelly's so good. He's so oh, good. he's, yeah, he is. Bill, what's your number four? All right, my number four is a classic original series, season one, episode 21, by any other name. And mostly I pick this. You know, the Enterprise gets hijacked by three aliens. It's two, two humanoid aliens. They're, they're energy beings. They're just taking the form of um, humans. It's two guys and a woman. And they're these really, like, uh, uh, you know, arch uh, characters who are trying to use the Enterprise. They're hijacking it to get from one place to the other. And they have these incredible energy powers. You know, like, they turn people, anyone who disobeys them, they turn into, like, this little hexagonal uh, gem, and then they crush it, you know, to indicate that they have power over energy, time, and space. And uh, the Enterprise crew beats them all one-on-one individually by outthinking them. So the woman gets seduced by uh, Kirk, and and she loses all her wits under his the, under the power of his romantic suggestion. And that is the, I believe, the quote, something like, is this what they call kissing? You know, and she completely pulls her apart 
with uh, the moves. But my favorite part in this episode is Scotty winds up drinking one of the aliens into oblivion. <laughs> and he's just pulling everything he has in the in the engine room. Like all these – he's got scotch whiskey. He's got vodka. He's got whatever. He's got Romulan ale. And the best line was – and the guy – he knows he's just drowning this guy in liquor. He pulls this thing out and Scotty goes, and this is green. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. I mean, it's just—it's a fantastic original series episode. Okay, my number four, and again, this list—it's not as representative as Trek as it should be. Not to spoil things too much, but there aren't any Deep Space Nine episodes, even though Deep Space Nine is easily my favorite of all the Trek shows. But there are just a few episodes which I've stood out from the original series and Next Generation. Um, unfortunately, none of the other series have made it, and that's why it's been such a difficult list to compile. But uh, number four is another Next Generation episode, and it's from season two. It's Q-Who. Ooh, yes. I, I'm a huge fan of the Borg, and the Borg, when done right, is just... It's one of the most, you know, they're one of the most incredible villains or, or, or antagonists, I think, in all of science fiction. And they were never scarier than they were in this first episode where Q, who came on board the Enterprise, he wanted to join the, the ship's crew and Picard was basically telling him to go do one. And he's saying, all right, but you guys need me. And he's like, no, we don't need you. And he's like, no, you really do because there's things out there that will just blow your mind that will both, both enthrall and terrify you. And and Picard's like, oh look, you know, do me a favor, mate, and piss off. <laughs> you know, we, we've we've got a you know we've got a planet to survey. And then he's like, yeah, he, he does a Thanos, clicks his fingers, and all of a sudden, uh, the Enterprise has traveled X amount of thousands of light years. I think into you know the maybe the the tail end of the Beta Quadrant, certainly into the you know the you know a part of the Delta Quadrant. And he actually, for the first time, we encounter the Borg. The, the whole episode just shows Picard and the Enterprise completely out of their depth. They introduced this incredible new villain to us. As much as little things were tailored, and when they go onto the Borg ship, we see little Borg babies. That's something that fortunately was sort of pushed to the wayside when we come to later Borg episodes. It's an amazing episode. I love just I just love the really sort of ominous ending where Picard knows now that he's seen this threat. He's pleaded with Q. Q sent them back into the Alpha Quadrant, but they know the Borg now you know they've seen the enterprise and there's that amazing scene where they just cut a section out of the saucer and, and you know for analysis and, and just you know the, the enterprise is completely overpowered and it's only because of q that they're able to get back you know, you know to the alpha quadrant and warn everyone that you know we better get our shit together guys because something big is coming yeah good good choice great one john what's your number three my number three is the season finale slash season of season three, season premiere of season four of Star Trek Next Generation. So I'm cheating a little bit by selecting uh, Best of Both Worlds. Uh, that's my number parts. two. There that's my number I two as well. I knew it. I knew it. Yeah. Uh, All of us have it's, got that as number two. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. It's such a goddamn good space adventure story. You, you even introduce a new character who in most, like, serialized or anthology shows you'd be like who is this new person taking precedent over Riker or whoever the Borg expert who cares but in this episode it's pulled off we actually get to like her admire her expertise there's all sorts of great action sequences and fight scenes it has one of the best cliffhanger moments in television history with Riker turning turning to the view screen and saying fire yeah Um, and, and then this great kind of immense tragedy that Picard experience of being you know violated by the Borg it's so nightmarish and just to go f- from such kind of like points of victory 
to points of terror back to victory again. It, it's remarkable television. And you know, the worst thing about these episodes was the fact that you had to wait from, I think it was, it was a three-month wait between June of 1990 to September of 1990 in between the seasons. And that wait, I always remember, was just excruciating. But yeah, it, we were, yeah, we were all waiting for it. Everybody. Yeah, it, it is just an absolute masterclass in television storytelling. It's got this epic scale to it. As much as we don't see the Battle of Wolf three five nine, we only see the aftermath. What we'd seen of the Borg in Kuhu was enough to get us intrigued, and then you know, full on seeing them enter the Federation much quicker than expected. It's just amazing. And of the two episodes, and I, I've lumped both of them into my choice at number two as well. I think the first is the stronger one. The way they eventually beat the Borg, yeah, it's fine, it works, but I just think that initial thing of when they're being pressed and when they're being beaten and when you know the Borg just swat them aside and go straight to Earth, I just think where the threat is more viable, that's where the episode is at its best. So I think the first part of me is, is, is you know the, the better of the two, but the two episodes as a whole is just premium Star Trek. And for the longest time, it was my favorite Star Trek episode. Excellent call. You can't argue with any of that logic. Okay, so that's sort of... Um, uh, John, that was your number three. Bill, what is your number three? Uh, mine is the second pilot they did because this show had a re- the original series had a weird kind of like stutter start. But I really like where No Man Has Gone Before with... Uh, talk about, you know, crossing the streams. You got um, Gary Lockwood, who was Frank Poole, of all people, and Sally Kellerman. And and it has, you know, the weird thing is, is that it's built into this episode that Sally Kellerman is, is, has ESP, which was never... You know, that, that was just ignored. No one ever had, like, oh, yes, naturally, there's just psychic powers on board. But because it seemed like this is a sci-fi show, you can get away with that without having to really mention it again. But it's it's Sally Kellerman and uh, Gary Blackwood are stuck on this planet. They're hit with a magnetic storm. And he, so they both of them get transformed into like cosmic entities, which is really uh, cool. He, he and Gary Lockwood wears these silver contact lenses, which just make it look like he has silver orbs in, in his eyes. And, and he becomes this omnipotent god entity, you know, who just has power over you know matter and, and and space. And it's just like Captain Kirk is is confronted by the fact that this man is literally too dangerous to live. And the weird thing is is that they defeat him by just catching him under a rock fall, which seems a little anticlimactic, but. I mean, considering that this was like right at the beginning of the show, there's a great performance by by Sally Kellerman and Gary Lockwood, and the concept is really big. I mean, it you know they did they did Star Trek right, and they did it early. Um, you know, the Cage was also great, but this was better, I think. Um, and and this is very non-representative of I think Star Trek to come, but I think it's a standout episode. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so obviously, uh, oh yeah, oh my number three. It's the only original series episode that's on this list, but please don't let that be representative of my opinion of the original series because I love it. It's just so many good episodes to choose from. And this was probably my most painful choice because I had to omit so many others. But the one original series episode that's always been my favorite is, is the first one I can remember seeing and, and thinking, yeah, you know, this show is something special. And that's a season two episode, Mirror Mirror. Good call. Mm-hmm. It's the one. It's one of the most beloved episodes, and it, it's one of the you know the best remembered. I think you've got Kirk, McCoy, Scotty, and Uhura. They're caught in some sort of dimensional shift caused by an ion, ion storm while they were beaming up from a diplomatic mission. All of a sudden, they materialize in an alternate universe on the Enterprise, but it's now part of a brutal sort of empire that's the opposite of the Federation. The Federation is, is a, has got a mission of peace. This other dark sort of mirror reflection of the Federation, 
phases a mission of conquest where the officers on the ship get ahead through murder and sabotage you've got spark rocking an incredible bad guy goatee you know he's he's a man of calculation and power but he's still logical enough to work out there's something not quite right about these four members of his crew which have come back onto the ship it's just an, an amazing episode every one of the cast has got something to do it's a simple premise but it's one that just delivers maximum impact and it's one that made a, it had ramifications throughout the rest of star trek because the mirror universe has turned up in five episodes of deep space nine there was an Enterprise two-parter. It's by far my favorite episode of the original series. Yeah, it, it works itself out. Uh, there's a, you know the fact that they don't eat each other alive, that they you know Spock and Kirk kind of deal with getting him out of there. It has an anticlimax, but it's really satisfying. Mm. I like that. So obviously our number two was best of both worlds. John, uh, what's your number two? So this is, again, a, a really difficult decision. There's so many episodes I could have picked because um, I, I love the kind of redressing of the cage in the episode of the Menagerie. Oh, yeah. Um, I think yeah. I think uh, the Cobra Might Maneuver has probably the best Kirk speech and is, again, a pure trek. But I can't get away from the city on the edge of forever. Like, there's not even that much trek about it because so much of the episode takes place in the 1930s. Kirk kind of has to not do anything that the heroic moment is watching the woman he loves get run over by a truck <laughs> um <laughs> but and so that's so what's unique about the episode and also what's so tragic about it you know this guy who makes a point out of being a lothario or at one point saying like I have a girlfriend. It's the Enterprise. So for him to <laughs> so blatantly fall in love w with somebody on Earth and have to be pulled away from that by Spock is so tragic. And I think you feel that in the performances of, of both Nimoy and, and Shatner. And the, the mysteriousness of the way that they travel in time and just and, and how it works. It, it, and I'm even fascinated by the behind-the-scenes shenanigans of Harlan Ellison when his name taken off of it because of all the changes Gene Roddenberry made. For all that comedy in, in this episode is is wonderful. It, it's, it's a great piece of television. Yes, yeah, it's, it's an amazing episode, and it was one that, you know, it, it pained me to leave off my own list. But I knew one of you guys would pick it. You know, it's always the connoisseur's choice for best Star Trek episode. It's incredibly well acted, beautifully written. It's got time travel, which is always a you know a popular Star Trek staple, and it's got Joan Collins. You know, what yeah. is there? What is there not to love? I, I wish Harlan Ellison wasn't such a hard on. I wish he was a, a more likable guy. But you know, but this is the, this is the cards that were dealt. There is actually a graphic novel adaptation of his script of *The City on the Edge of Forever*, and for any, I really recommend it for any. Trek fan because it's really fascinating to see how much of his script is still in the episode but how much is also changed and so how this one thing can be so different and so the same at the same time so you, I highly recommend it uh, it's one graphic novel it's pretty fantastic so Bill we're on to your number one I'm a simple man, Sky, and I have simple pleasures in life. And my favorite <laughs> episode, it is, you know, one of the just, it just does Trek right. It's not a season finale. It's not something. It is just great. It's just a simple, great episode. Original series, season one, episode 29, Operation Annihilate. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, this is the one with the flying ravioli monsters that get on. They, they pretty much. <laughs> 
it lodges itself yeah. between your shoulder blades and kills you. And they're like hanging from under, and they're just like, they, they were just frisbeed off from production grips. And I, I love that. But the reason why I love this episode so much is because, uh, you know, these things get in you and they, they kill you. They put tendrils in your body and they, you know, essentially they, they take you over. But it, it, it's essentially a big transparent ravioli that kills you. Bach gets infected by the ravioli monster and he has to be brought back onto the enterprise and he survives because of his Vulcan physiology, but he's sort of undergoing this uh, a boiling pain inside of him because his body's barely able to keep it at, at bay. And so Bones manages to figure out how to counteract the infection and it's essentially blasting him with infrared and um, energy. So he goes into this chamber and he gets zapped. He comes out, he's fine. He walks out, and as, as, as Spock walks out of the chamber, he barks his shin on the counter, and he says, Doctor, your treatment has worked. I'm also quite blind. And, you know, it's like he fried his retinas, and then and Bones is, is lambasting himself. He says, damn it, I used the entire electromagnetic spectrum. I used visible light. I blinded him. And you just thought that it was going to be this thing where McCoy has to live with this. He maimed Spock, but it turns out that his Vulcan retinas actually repaired themselves over the course of the episode. He gains his sight back. It is just, like I said, simple trek, well done, a completely, you know, run-of-the-mill episode of the middle of the season, although it's just like a platonic solid. I really love it. I like that episode a lot, too. It's a good one, yeah. Yeah. So I think we're on. My number one is an episode. It's not a season finale. It's not a two-parter. It comes to the middle of season three of The Next Generation, and it is Yesterday's Enterprise. Classic. It was always going to be a toss-up between this and Best of Both Worlds, but because I didn't want to pick between part one and part two of Best of Both Worlds, I thought, let's go for the easier choice. I think from a writing point of view, this is probably one of the, the most clever concepts in, in a Next Generation episode. Again, it's using time travel. It was an episode that took seven writers to make, and, and after two initially quite shaky seasons, The Next Generation had definitely found its footing in season three. And, and this is not only one of the best episodes of The Next Generation, but one of the best episodes from the entire Star Trek franchise. It's got a very intelligent premise of the arrival of a previously destroyed Enterprise C from, I think, 22 years in the past which comes through a time rift. As soon as it enters the future, history has changed, making the Enterprise-D into a battleship because the Enterprise-C played an integral part in stopping a war between the Federation and the Klingons. It's only Guinan who knows that something isn't right because she's just got this incredibly innate ability. And Guinan's one of my favorite Star Trek characters, that she knows she's got this sort of link to the space-time continuum. And if something is wrong, she inherently knows. And then it also had the, the surprise reappearance of Tasha Yar, who'd been killed pointlessly in, in the season one episode. But she's still alive in this altered timeline. And, and it's her quest for a, like a, a noble and meaningful death that is just... You know, it gives a poignancy and, and a heart to this episode that just marks it out as just one of the... It's just one of the most perfect episodes in all of Trek. I love that episode. And, and like you said, I, I love their use of Guy in, in that one too. It's almost like she can sense time like she can smell it or something yeah. like she just knows something's off it's it's a beautiful use of a character and it's when, and when she tells tasha that she says look i think where i come from you're not even there you died and it's that realization with tasha of jesus you know i, I maybe i'm given a second chance here to do something and and avoid this meaningless death that i had in 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 this other universe this other timeline 
You know, isn't the, the Guinan thing was essentially what Scott Lobdell ripped off, uh, right? When he put Bishop in the in the um, Age of Apocalypse with the one guy who was left over thinking, oh, this was not the way it was supposed to be. And the only reason it goes back to normal is because you have one character, you know, sort of has this editorial viewpoint that they got to fix things. Yeah, he was, yeah, because after the, you know, the um, wasn't it when um, I think Legion went back in time, he killed Professor X and that altered yeah. the whole yeah. history. Yeah, yeah, they did. So, yeah, I, I never thought of it like that, but it, it is very similar to that whole concept there yeah so john uh, finishing off we're on to your number one uh so star trek the next generation is my trek it's the one that i grew up with while new episodes were, were coming out and so it was always going to be the one that i was going to love forever my favorite episode is from the fifth season it's a remarkable performance from patrick stewart uh just one of the most indelible pieces of storytelling i've ever seen on television it's inner light the, the Enterprise encounters a very ancient, serious probe. It's Zaps Picard with some mystery beam. He goes unconscious, and then he's transported to this primitive agrarian planet where he, given the identity or takes on the identity of a man called Cayman, a community leader, and lives out an entire life until he's a very old man, uh, until this planet, which is fac facing a global extinction, dies. And so we get... An entire life story of one man through the eyes of Picard, um, who has children, his children have children, and he knows he's going to see them die because of the way his planet is is going. And then eventually he wakes up back again decades later from his point of view on the bridge of the Enterprise. And only with an actor of Patrick Stewart's caliber could this have ever been pulled off. And even the old age makeup is good, which is something that television sometimes really drops the ball on. It's just one of the most subtle um, and heartbreaking pieces of science fiction I've ever seen. And it's one of my favorite pieces of television that's ever been produced. Yeah. And do you know what, John? It's there if you go back and watch it. But if you watch every subsequent episode after that, you just see a slight shift in the Picard character because he, yeah, he's definitely. different. He's permanently altered. Patrick Stewart completely embraced that and, and just ran with it. And it's yeah, it's an incredible episode. Oh, sorry, I hate to be the comic book guy here again, but this is kind of what Rick Remender did with Captain America in that I think it was that Dimension X run with Arnim Zola from like six, seven, eight years ago. Remember that? Uh, that he, is a he, run that I never read, unfortunately. Uh, he threw Captain America into uh, a dimension where he essentially aged 10 years and had a family and then came back at the moment he left. But he had this entire lifetime that he'd underwent, you know, with, with an actual child, um, you know, and had to incorporate that into his backstory. God, Steve Rogers, you've been through the ringer. Yeah. yeah. But I, I also love that in Next Generation, like periodically you would see Picard when he's by himself, like he'll be holding or looking at the flute the that flute, he learned to yes. play while as came in and, you know, then somebody will come into his quarters and he'll like quickly close it or something. And he only shares that with people that he becomes very close to. And so it becomes a runner of the depths of Picard's soul throughout the series. So there you go. That's our, our picks. Have you got any honorable mentions, guys, you want to run through? Yes, I do, if, you, if you'll allow me. <laughs> For a next gen, um, I love Darmok, uh, Measure of a Man, Tapestry and Chain of Command, Original Series, uh, Trouble with Tribble, Tribbles, and Corbo My Maneuver, and Menagerie were my others uh, that had to be sadly excised. Very cool. Yeah, I would I would only add two more. I would say Tholian Web uh, from uh, TOS is great. And, you know, uh, Time's Arrow, which was another two-parter that ended yeah. the season, the one where Data's head was found in a cave and it, the Old West. It was, I mean, it's such schlocky bullshit, but, man, it's great. It really paid off. Yeah. Mark Twain's in it. <laughs> yes, he is. Yeah, Mark, Mark Twain, Twain is in it. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
The ones that you know, I have to admit from the original series were Balance of Terror, Arena, just because it's so much fun, The Devil in the Dark, City on the Edge of Forever, and Space Seed, which I just think is a you know, once you've seen Wrath of Khan and fallen in love with that film, going back and watching Space Seed is just a complete treat. Yeah, yeah. Once I left off from Next Generation with Cause and Effect, Parallels, The Pegasus, The Inner Light, and Chain of Command, and then going into Deep Space Nine, you've got Duet, The Wire, which is an amazing Garak episode, you've got The Search Parts One and Two. Defiant, The Way of the Warrior, Trials and Tribulations, which is just magnificent. And then you've got a six-episode arc that culminates with the sacrifice of angels with the biggest Trek space battle we've ever seen. Uh, a few from Voyager, uh, Unity, which was the first episode where the Borg appeared, but with a slightly different twist because it was a load of Borg which had been removed from the collective. Um, Scorpion Parts 1 and 2, Year of Hell Parts 1 and 2, which I've recently rewatched and it holds up so well. Uh, the two-part Borg episode Dark Frontier, which had Susanna Thompson playing the Borg Queen. And then finally, um, Endgame, the final Voyager episode, which was just a beautiful send-off and an amazing performance from Kate Mulgrew. So uh, we did put out to social media, but before we get to that, from the Film 89 crew, Richie Roberts' choices were The Trouble of Tribbles from the original series, In the Pale Moonlight from DS9, Space Seed from the original series, The Best of Both Worlds, and number one, The Menagerie. And then also the newest member of the Film 89 crew, you heard him on the last episode, Avengers Endgame, James Pierce, who's on Twitter at James underscore 2045. Number five, In the Pale Moonlight from DS9. Another DS9 episode, number four, is The Siege of AR-558. Number three, Voyager, Year of Hell Parts 1 and 2. Number two is from the original series, Arena. And number one, The Best of Both Worlds. Martin Kessler, who's obviously a huge friend of Film 89, at Movie Kessler on Twitter. His choices were The City on the Edge of Forever, Who Watches the Watchers from The Next Generation, The House of Quark from Deep Space Nine, Trials and Tribulations from Deep Space Nine, and The Killing Game from Voyager. And another member of uh, The Wrong Real Crew is a, a huge friend of ours, Becky Diana. You'll find her on Twitter at HWoodMinotaur. Her top five are all the original series episodes, City on the Edge of Forever, Devil in the Dark, Errand of Mercy, Mirror Mirror, and A Mock Time. And the previous Film 89 guest, John Cribbs, you'll find him on Twitter, at The Last Machine. He says, the five episodes I'd request to be placed in my torpedo coffin with me would be <laughs> Doomsday Machine, <laughs> Darmok from The Next Generation, Chain of Command Part 2, In the Pale Moonlight from Deep Space Nine, and he's been quite cheeky with his final choice, where no fan has gone before, the episode of Futurama. Going out to Twitter then, uh, I'll just do a few more because we are a little bit pushed for time now. Steven Simpson, who's on Twitter, at SteveU7. Number five, Trials and Tribulations from Deep Space Nine. Time's Arrow, the two-parter from Next Generation that you just mentioned, Bill. Number three is This Side of Paradise from the original series. Number two, Q-Who from The Next Generation. And number one, Good Old City on the Edge of Forever from the original series. And finally, I will go with Hayden Reese jones who's on Twitter, at H-E-R-J-U-K. He's picked seven. Number seven is Such Sweet Sorrow, part two, which is a recent Discovery episode. Number six, In the Mirror Darkly, which is the Mirror Universe episode from Enterprise. Number five, Scorpion from Star Trek Voyager. Number four is Arman Bashir from Deep Space Nine. Number three, Relics from The Next Generation. Number two is Yesteryear <coughs> from the original, no, sorry, from the animated series. And number nice. one, City on the Edge of Forever. 
So there you go, guys and girls. Um, sorry for all the people that we didn't give a, a shout out to and didn't pick their top fives, but we are a little bit pushed for time, I'm afraid. But thank you everyone that sent them all in. And thank you everyone for your continued support. Again, I know we do this every episode, but it'd be remiss of me if, I, if we didn't thank all of our listeners and followers for all the kind words, all the, the DMs, the emails, the tweets and the messages on Facebook that we receive. It's just, you know, making this whole thing worthwhile. So please, um, if you like the, uh, like the episode, please, if you haven't already, subscribe. Please leave us a positive iTunes review. But most importantly, recommend us to your friends and family or anyone who just loves films and TV. Bill and John, thank you so much for uh, joining me on this episode. It's been, I've just absolutely loved talking about Trek with you guys. Uh, Bill, where can people find you um, if they want to hit you up on social media? And well, just tell us all about your podcast. Uh, Podcast is called I Don't Get It. Uh, My Twitter feed for that is at Noah and Bill Show. Uh, my personal Twitter is at William Scurry, and I'm doing most of the podcast heavy lifting through there for the most part, but there is a separate feed for it. Podcast is very simple. Two old men look at youth trends and see do they make sense or not, and uh, we try to make some fun of it every week. And and thank you so much for having me. This is like one of my favorite podcasts. I love you guys. What you guys do, you have a fantastic crew. It's only too bad that uh, Neil wasn't able to play uh, around with us because I enjoy our chemistry together, but uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Bill. We'll definitely get you back on with um neil so you two can then gush over each other like you did it's a a bromance man it's a a bromance bromance. yeah yeah makes me feel like the you know the 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 fifth wheel john uh where can people find you if they want to hit you up for a chat about comic books or or films or anything else i am at quasar sniffer on the twitter and instagram um you can find comics connection on facebook uh, we are in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. We sell actual books to actual humans. It's good stuff. Um, and to anybody out there who likes Trek, I highly recommend the new series Star Trek Year 5, written by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing, art by Stephen Thompson. It feels exactly like the original series. I was pleasantly surprised to no end. Star Trek Year 5, it's great. And again, I have to echo what Bill said. It's an absolute joy to be on Film 89. This is some of the best podcasting out there. An extraordinary privilege to be back so soon after Apocalypse Now. It's an absolute privilege. And and, and to be on with my Twitter bro, Bill, uh, it's it's been so great talking track with you guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Recipro- reciprocated. Oh, definitely. Times 10. We're just going to wrap things to a close now. As usual, you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies, and you can follow the rest of the Film 89 crew at Film 89 UK on Twitter and Facebook. And please check out the site, film89.co.uk. It's been an absolute pleasure having uh, Bill and John back on. I think we're going to be taking a little bit of a break now. I'm going to be uh, taking a bit of an extended family holiday over to the old uh, good old US of A. Um, I think when we come back, we haven't got anything solid in the pipeline, but Game of Thrones is wrapping up soon. And I think it would be remiss of us if we didn't send that show off in style. Like I say, everyone, at the end of every episode, stay safe, stay happy, but most importantly, you stay classy. <laughs>